You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 165 of the Common Descent Podcast. Here on the podcast, we talk about all sorts of things, paleontology, evolution, earth history, life history, and so on. And every now and then, we dedicate an episode to plants. Yep. These days, those are the episodes that end in a five, which means this episode, there's going to be a lot of plant talk. And once we get to the main discussion... Allie's going to be here with us, as usual. This episode's topic is fruit. Yeah. A very cool episode topic, a topic that I know Allie was very excited to get to talk to us about. We'll be talking about what fruit is, which, my boy, that's a question that we're going to talk about that question for a long time. (laughs) What fruit is, what makes fruit a fruit, what are the different categories of fruit, they're not what you think, and what fruit does. We'll talk about the function of fruits. Also, more diverse and exciting uh, than you might expect it to be. Yeah, it does more than just taste good. It absolutely does. There's so many things, that fruit, that I wouldn't want to eat at all. (laughs) And, of course, we'll talk about the evolution of fruit. We'll talk about the fossil record. This is a really cool uh, pseudo-companion episode to episode 135, which was about seeds. Yeah. These two go together very nicely. As with all of our episode topics, this was requested by the audience. This topic was actually requested a bunch. <laughs> Lots of people wanted to hear about fruit. Our requesters for this subject were Lydia, Jackson, Jackie, Big Boss Man, Christian, Little Grayfish, Varun, Jesse, Patty, Sarah, Richard, Scott, and Carissa. Woo! Thanks, everybody. That's a lot of fruits. Your wish is our episode topic uh, that Allie is going to be here to talk to us about. Yes. <laughs> People get real excited about plant topics. <laughs> well, they get, they have to wait. <laughs> like, they, there's it's long spells between. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the main parts of the episode, a few quick announcements. Number one, we have a Patreon. The support we get from our patrons on Patreon helps us to do everything with the podcast. We are extremely grateful. Patrons get all sorts of goodies, bonus content, director's notes, live streams with us, special presents. We recently released our Patreon mini episode compilation number three, which is a bunch of recordings we did specifically for patrons at a certain level. One of the rewards you can get as a patron is your name. Shout it out right here on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome new patrons, Luke, Madeline, possibly Madeline, Kit Kat, Sam, Tristan, and Archie Opterix. <laughs> I get it. I see what you did there. <laughs> welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, if you would like to support us on Patreon, go down to the episode description and find the link to Patreon. There's all sorts of good stuff in there. In fact, the episode description has links to all sorts of ways that you can get yourself involved with the podcast. We've got our own Discord server. We've got social medias. We have a physical mailing address. There's also a link down there to an Audible free trial that if you sign up for it, you get access to Audible and support us here on the podcast One of our listeners actually reached out to us recently, Rob, with a recommendation for a book on Audible. 
a book called The Possibility of Life by Jamie Green, which is about the search for life elsewhere in the universe. One of my favorite topics. We haven't read this book, but it comes recommended by a listener of ours, so there's all sorts of good stuff on Audible. (laughs) Also, it is May, which means next month is June, which is Croc Month. Woo! Followed by Snake Month. We will be doing all sorts of cool themed stuff for Croc and Snake Month, including special channels on the Discord, special tiers on the Patreon, special donation opportunities, and bonus episode content all about crocs and snakes, because we like them so much. (laughs) So stay tuned for more information about that. And one last thing, every now and then we get the opportunity to give a shout out to another podcast out there. We did this last episode and we'll do it again. There is a new podcast out there called Little Curiosities by Kendall Long. If you listen to that podcast, you'll hear a little shout out to us. Here's a shout out in the other direction. Little Curiosities is a science podcast hosted, as I said, by Kendall Long, who has spent her whole life exploring sparks of curiosity like, what is the color green and how does it help give life to so much on our planet? Each week, Kendall takes it upon herself to bring listeners on an adventure of research and scientific exploration. Her mission is to help other like-minded, curious people discover everything there is to know about these little mysteries and gain a greater sense of the world around us. You can follow and listen to Little Curiosities on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And that's enough announcements. Let's move on to the science content of this here science podcast. Every episode, we start off with the news. We pick some news stories from the world of paleontology research related studies. Keeps everybody up to date with what's going on out there. Will... What news have you brought? I have news about a thick tadpole. All right. Or at least that's what its scientific name means. Thick tadpole. Thick tadpole. All right. This is about an early tetrapod whose skull has recently been reconstructed and taken a very different shape than we initially thought. Interesting. Tell me more. This is research by Laura Poro et al. in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And the article we'll be linking to in the blog post is by Lydia Smith in Live Science. This research is on an early tetrapod, Crescigerinus scoticus, which names means thick tadpole. Early tetrapod means it's in that early group of first land-dwelling animals that evolved from those lobe-finned fish. So these are those kind of salamandry looking, but not actually salamanders. They would have been showing up a bit after 400 million years ago. Crescigerinus Dates to the lower mid-Carboniferous, so 350 to 330 million years old. So they are on the early end and would have been living in coal swamps found in Scotland and Canada. You know, what is now Scotland and Canada. And this was a large member, around 2 to 3 meters, so 6.5 to almost 10 feet. Wow. This is a known species. You know, this is not a new species. We've been studying this creature for quite some time. But it is... Interesting because it has unusual morphology compared to other early tetrapods at the time. So it stands out from them in a couple of key ways. It has a mixture of primitive and derived characteristics. So things more similar to the early, earliest tetrapods and some that seem to be more highly evolved, more specialized and different from those early tetrapods. So it has a mixture of traits that make it unique. It was also seen to have been aquatic which either means that it never fully came onto land, its lineage didn't, or that they went back and became aquatic again after coming on land. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be a very dedicated aquatic animal. So it's been a focus of study for quite some time, 
but reconstruction of its face has been difficult because all of its specimens have either crushed or deformed skulls. So it's been hard to get a good idea of what its head looked like. Previous reconstructions, based mainly on five incomplete specimens, had given suggestions of a very dorsoventrally tall skull. So a high head that was broad and short in the snout. So tall. they kind of compared it to a moray eel. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tall so head. Relatively narrow side mm-hmm. to side, but tall top to bottom. Yeah, and not super long like a croc, but a more shortened, you know, powerful snout. Hmm. This study CT scanned four specimens so that they could separate out the bone from the rock matrix and the bones from each other and take it apart and put it back together and basically try to undo that deformation. Right, to digitally put it back into its original shape. To construct what they called a retro-deformed skull. Cool. Uh, so that they're <laughs> trying to, they called it like a 3D puzzle. Right. That's exactly the comparison they made. That's what they were trying to do here, using the fragmentary skulls from all four specimens to try to get a complete picture. After doing this, they found that the only way they could get it to reconstruct in a way that made sense yielded a very different shape. Interesting. Not dorsoventrally tall, not stretched up tall and narrow on the sides, but actually flattened and more pancaked, which is very different from what we thought and still very unique from other tetrapods at the time. Hmm. So it still is a very unique creature, just in a different way than we had initially thought. Weird. (laughs) So it had a much flatter face, still powerful jaws, and large teeth. Uh, Like, there are 3D images of them of this new reconstruction online. And in those 3D images, you can see just all of these sharp teeth just filling the mouth. Cool. They also noted things like it seemed to have a specialized jaw joint for powerful biting. And then those strong teeth all lean toward this being a predatory animal, which I believe is what we thought about it beforehand. Mm -hmm. But it seems, yep, no, this is very distinctly a predator. Specialized predator. And as is very often the case with... These early tetrapods, very crocodilian-esque, flattened skull, strong jaw joint with big teeth. It, that is very much an aquatic ambush predator suite of characteristics. Right. Yeah, that that taller head structure isn't by any means out of the question for an aquatic predator, but a flattened head like a croc, like a lot of other early tetrapods, makes a ton of sense for something hunting in the water. Well, and the big thing that that suggests is where in the water you're possibly are hunting Mm -hmm. a tall head's fine if you're hunting underwater but if you're hunting at the surface and you want to be stealthy a flat face is much better right we see that a lot with crocs mm -hmm. salamanders other things like that so it very is it is very possible that we could have been seeing a similar behavior here with them noting that with all these features it also could have been taking down large prey like Mm -hmm. hefty prey animals they noted other features that seemed that it was adapted to active lifestyles in the swamps it would have been living in. It had large eyes, which would have given it good sight in potentially murky water, but also surface sight if it is hunting at the surface. And note of what seems to be signs of a lateral line. Oh, cool. That it did still retain the fish trimmer sense that they have. Fish have these lines on their body that sense vibrations of water. It seems this animal might still have had that. This new reconstruction, though, did also reveal some questions. There are some notable gaps near the front of the snout that they're not sure what they were for. So this new reconstruction revealed some missing information, 
and it could indicate some other form of sense. They noted that these could uh, this, these gaps could potentially be answered by the presence of some sort of rostral organ to help it either detect electrical fields or a Jacobson's organ mm-hmm. that would have given them a, a the heightened sense of smell that Jacobson's organs are used by for so many animals. And so I have pictures here of the old and the new reconstruction so that David can see it going from the uh, yeah. tall from face to the flat eel- face. Eel-like to croc-like. Yep. Yep. And so it is a very extreme reconstruction that is having researchers rethink the behavior and lifestyle of this creature in a number of ways. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those interesting cases where we are continuing to learn more about this ancient species, not directly due to new discoveries, but to new techniques being used on previously examined fossils. Absolutely. Which is a pretty standard part of paleontology research. And speaking of new techniques being used to examine older ideas in paleontology, I've got a study here about how certain fossil sites produce exceptionally well-preserved fossils. Cool. This is research by Drew Macenti et al. in Earth Science Reviews, and we'll link in the blog post to an article on Tech Explorist by Vidya Nagawade. We've talked several times on the podcast before about fossil sites that preserve fossils just really, really well, often called Konservat Lagerstätten, really exceptional uh, fossil localities, that have complete bodies, that have soft tissues. Much discussion has surrounded the question of what are the conditions that allow for that kind of preservation to happen. And one of the recurring themes that paleontologists often talk about is low oxygen levels. Low oxygen at the bottom of a lake or a deep part of the ocean can limit the activity of microbes and scavengers and other animals that would either be eating carcasses or moving the sediment around. The thought is that when you have very low oxygen, a dead thing can sink down to the bottom and be relatively undisturbed, allowing plenty of time to be buried and mineralized without the soft tissues getting eaten away or the body getting moved around and stuff. It's also possible that low oxygen might help with some forms of mineralization. For example, it was noted in this discussion that pyritization, the replacement of tissues with pyrite, often happens in low oxygen conditions. Ah, so it's not just potentially keeping away scavengers, but also promoting certain chemical reactions. Potentially. This study decided to examine the fossils at a particularly famous example, the Posidonia Shale in Germany. This is a site that dates to about 183 million years ago during an event called the Torsion Oceanic Anoxia Event, a time where oxygen levels got really low in the ocean. They looked at a bunch of the fossils from this site specifically to examine how they are mineralized and what that might tell us about the role that oxygen was playing in their fossilization. The site includes lots of shells and bones. These hard parts are often preserved, they noted, as carbonate or pyrite, but also tons of soft tissues. They noted crustacean carapaces, squid ink sacs, ichthyosaur skin, coprolites, and in their study, they observed that many of those, and uh, in the, the article... They even noted that even a bunch of the specimens that were thought to be pyritized were, in fact, phosphatized, preserved with phosphate. So a lot of the soft tissues, and it sounds like even more than we previously realized, are preserved 
uh, with phosphate minerals replacing the original material. Yeah, they noted that there were there are these golden ammonites mm-hmm. from the site that are often said to be pyrotized, but that many of them are actually phosphatized. Huh. They also noted that in many of the phosphate-preserved fossils, they have cracks in them that are filled with other minerals. So you have these sort of veins in these cracks of pyrite and things like that. And this, they said, is important for what it tells us about the order of events in fossilization. These researchers concluded that these cracks probably formed because of burial compaction. As Mm -hmm. they're being buried in the sediment, it creates these cracks in tissues that were already phosphatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were already hardened and replaced when that compaction happened. And then they were filled in by other minerals when the cracks opened and exposed tissues to be replaced by different things. This, they noted, suggests that that phosphate replacement would have happened early on before they were buried and compacted and would have likely been promoted in the presence of oxygen. That is a chemical process that they would have expected to be encouraged by oxygenated environments, whereas the minerals forming in the cracks are consistent with low oxygen conditions. Okay. So this style of preservation, they suggest, might have been happening in a place where oxygen levels weren't consistently low, but back and forth, or fluctuating, that there may have been brief bursts of oxygen that promoted some of the preservation. Yes. Or that it may have been happening, this kind of preservation may have been happening on the border of an anoxic body of water. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you could be exposed to both low oxygen and more high oxygen conditions. All of this is to say that the idea that low oxygen conditions equals great fossil preservation might be a partially incomplete thought. Yes. That certain forms of really exceptional fossil preservation, in this case particularly those soft tissue preservations, might actually be supported by partial or brief or fluctuating exposure to high oxygen, that low oxygen is great for keeping scavengers away and for certain forms of mineralization, but for the really good stuff, in some cases, you might actually need a bit of both. Yeah, that might not just be having low oxygen, but just the right amount. Yes, or just the right amount at the right times. They noted in the abstract that in some cases, it seems, purely low oxygen conditions might actually get in the way Mm -hmm. of certain forms of exceptional fossil preservation. That's very interesting because it's a a much more complex, potentially a a series of events than one might have guessed. And in that face, almost makes sense because of how rare this kind of fossilization is. Like, Mm -hmm. that's like, I'm not actually that surprised that it might be even more special of a scenario. Like, it's not just low. The just right amount. Well, and if that's the case, that might also help us to understand the the environments that these things are preserving in. If they are environments with particular conditions, Mm -hmm. that can help us narrow down what kind of environment it was. Yes, exactly. So we could have a better picture of that. It's not just a deep still lake, but it would need to be a deep still lake with these other features that might adjust the flow of oxygen or or we're at the border Mm -hmm. of the low oxygen region of the ocean at that time so more insights into what particular environmental conditions give us the best fossils in the world yeah yeah yeah. very very intriguing 
it's it's also very cool to note from a taphonomic standpoint like that these cracks they were noting were not damage to the specimen before fossilization but after the first step of fossilization right so these were cracks in a fossil that then got further adjusted by minerals yes and during the process like that's a really great example of how complex taphonomic studies of the fossilization process can get of like not just that things can happen at in one step that it could happen in step one and then step two happening way after for different reasons Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, fossilization is a multi-phase process yes and this is a really interesting version of that yeah cool well my next news doesn't have anything to do with that but it does have something to do with my first news so that works (laughs) no we should have done them back to back yeah this is also dealing with the concept and the topic of early tetrapods specifically though why and how blinking was evolved oh cool yes not a question that comes up very often, but a very unique thing to us land animals. I blink all the time. <laughs> yep. This is research by Brett, by Brett Aiello et al. In the, in the journal PNAS. And the article is by Ben Turner, also in Live Science. So blinking, what we do with our eyelids, is any form of either eyelid or nictitating membrane, any way of closing or wetting and protecting the eye. Just putting a sheath over it and then often moving the sheath back off. Yes. We know that this is does all sorts of things of cleaning the eye, moistening it, uh, you know, closing your eye in case it's about to be injured. It's extremely important for the health of the eye. Humans can start to lose their vision if they are kept from blinking for too long. Mm-hmm. And it's seen in most tetrapods, like most, most land dwelling vertebrates yep. do it. This is a very common thing just among us land vertebrates, but is notably absent in the Sarcopterygians, the lobe-finned fish that ancestrally tetrapods evolved from. Mm-hmm. So this has often led it to be thought that it is a water-to-land transition feature. That makes sense. Yeah, that is something like, that's protecting the eye, moistening it. Yes. Yep, that all makes it get that, so sand's not getting in yeah, there. This is a tool for <laughs> living in the air. And it's not necessary if you're living in water already. Right. But the questions of how it first evolved and for sure why it first evolved is more difficult to study because it is a very soft tissue feature. Mm -hmm. So fossilization wise, there's not a lot of solid, easy to find evidence for the presence of blinking or why or how those animals were blinking. Right. You need those particular oxygen conditions. Yep, yep, yep. So they decided to look at... A modern example of convergent blinking evolution in mudskipper fish. Oh, fish that have evolved their own version of blinking. Yes. So mudskippers are very, very popular in a lot of documentaries. So you might have seen them. These are the little kind of oddly shaped. They've got a a very flat face and eyes on top of the head and then powerful front fins that they can use to support themselves. And then they use their tail to flick and hop around out of the water on the mud. Yep. In between ponds and stuff. They can still swim perfectly fine, but they also can spend long periods out of the water. And they do indeed have their own form of blinking, where they retract the eyes down into their face into a membrane that moistens and protects the eye. And so they did a couple of different analyses on these fish to figure out why do you blink, what causes them to blink, and how are you blinking, what muscles are you using. Their behavioral side of the analysis involved setting up high-speed cameras in a mudskipper-controlled habitat 
so they could mark when the fish are blinking and where and under what conditions, and then they could adjust conditions in the habitat to see how whether blinking increased or decreased. Tracking the location of where they blinked, they noticed, unsurprisingly, that underwater they barely blinked at all, and on land they blinked much more frequently. Mm -hmm. So already that's lining up with what we had guessed. They would note that they would blink to remove debris, so when stuff got on the eye they would blink to get rid of it, and that they would blink when it looked like their eye might be injured. So when something was potentially going to come hurt the eye, they would blink, just like we do. They also messed with the airflow in the habitat, and increasing airflow would increase evaporation rates, and noted that with increased evaporation rates, blinking also increased. Gotcha. So it might be helping to moisten the eye. Yes. And anatomically, absolutely, the eye does get moistened when they blink, but they're doing it differently than us. They don't have tear glands or ducts like we do which is what we are moistening our eye with, is we're producing tears to keep the eye wet. They, though, seem to use a mix of mucus from the skin and water from their environment, that Hmm. when it goes into the membrane, that's what's wetting the eye. And so all this seems to show that their blinks are extremely convergent, at least functionally, in why they're blinking to other tetrapods, us included. They're blinking for many of the same reasons in similar conditions, and have even convergently evolved their own form of eye-wetting, non-tear duct moisture. The other part of the analysis was looking at the histology and musculature of the blink, you know, their, the anatomy of their blinking muscles, and compared them to the fully aquatic round goby, which is a you know more expected fish that does not blink, and found that the muscles that are used during the blinking process are not new muscles. They are repurposed or rearranged muscles that already exist in the goby. So these are muscles already found in other fish and that the mudskippers have repurposed for this blinking motion, suggesting that the musculature for blinking may not have been very difficult to evolve. Not a wholly new feature. Mm -hmm. You just shifted some muscles that were existing. Which potentially suggests that the ancient fish that first started coming on land and likely started blinking may not have had much difficulty evolving that feature that that could have been a very quickly evolved adaptation both including the musculature and as we're shown ways to moisten the eye without a tear duct yet yeah yeah so like all the functions of blinking that we use now could have evolved very early on with fairly simple adaptations and they did note that there is some fossil evidence that potentially correlates to eye retraction like this mm-hmm in early limbed vertebrates, suggesting that blinking might have been happening or that they are at least potentially capable of blinking. Right, or doing something similar. Yeah, or on the route to that, maybe. Like, the the setup was in place roughly 375 million years ago. Interesting. It's also intriguing to think of the similarities between what you're describing for the mudskippers and... Frogs and salamanders Mm -hmm. that oftentimes you you see this a lot with frogs where their blink has a bit of that pulling the eye in look to it. Amphibians also have mucus secretions on their bodies. It's fairly intuitive to imagine amphibians, which are very similar in many ways to those earliest tetrapods, blinking in very much the same way that these mudskippers are doing. Absolutely. One of the most fun things that we get to do in paleontology every now and then is look at an early, find a modern day animal and go, this thing might be an indication 
of what these really ancient early stages in this part of our uh, lineage evolution might have been doing. Yeah, they're either potentially still doing it the way that the ancestors did it, or this other group has found a similar way of doing it and might be a modern example of yes. what was happening. Which, incidentally, is why mudskippers are studied so much yep. in this specific realm of research. Yes. It's like, these are fish that leave the water. Let's look at how they're doing it. It's everything about them. By far our most highly adapted terrestrial fish today. Right. And but only fish nowadays that truly blinks. So right. like, they have features <laughs> no one else does, so they are useful for these studies and questions. Very cool. We've got one more bit of news and in line with our main theme for the episode, my last bit of news is about plants. <laughs> Specifically, a cool, well-preserved cycad fossil Oh, uh, for insights about early cycad evolution. This is research by Andres Elgoriaga and Brian Atkinson in the journal New Phytologist. And we will link in the blog post to a press release via the University of Kansas. This new fossil is a cycad. So we talked a bit about cycads in episode 155, the last time Allie was on here. Cycads are gymnosperms, so they are non-flowering seed plants. They're not angiosperms. Cycads today are often relatively short, with thick stems and palm-like leaves. Cycads are also famous for being ancient. Cycads mm -hmm. are often invoked in art of, you know, dinosaur habitats and things like that. Research has suggested, based on DNA evidence that cycads evolved fairly early on, that the cycads have been around for quite some time. But it seems past research has indicated that the modern diversity of cycads mostly comes from evolutionary radiations that have happened in the last 30 million years or so. Hmm. So most of the modern cycad diversity originates relatively recently, which means there's a whole bunch we just don't know very much about from earlier cycad evolution, that our modern cycads may or may not be a good stand-in when we think about more ancient cycads. That is very recent for how long they've been around. Yeah, and there's a bunch of groups that have done that. Yeah. They've been around a bunch, and then they've had a recent diversification, which can make it a little hard. You know, they talked in the article that cycads are one of those groups of life that are often considered, quote, living fossils, episode 90. And as a result of that, we often think of ancient cycads as just looking more or less like cycads today, partially because we know they were around, but also because we just don't have a lot of fossils from back then to tell us one way or the other. This study describes a very well-preserved cycad cone. Ooh. So they have cones, they're gymnosperms, so like pines, they, they make cones that carry their pollen and such. This cone is mineralized in three dimensions with preservation of even many of the tiniest features. Cool. This comes from the Holtz Shale in Silverado Canyon, California, and it dates to the late Cretaceous about 80 million years ago. In examining the anatomy of the cone, the cone scales, the pollen sacs, the pollen, all the features, the researchers identified it as belonging to the genus Scytogardia, this is a genus that was identified a few years ago from isolated cone scales. Ooh. So pieces of cones. And because it was preserved as just those bits and pieces, the researchers in that previous study 
weren't confident in calling it a psychad. It sounds like they maybe they tentatively said this might be a psychad, but they weren't sure. This research is able to link this new cone to that, call it the same genus, and say that, yes, this is in fact a psychad. <laughs> so based on the anatomy, they did a phylogenetic analysis. They can say, we can confirm this genus is a psychad. Beyond that, it's got a bunch of unusual features for psychads, which is one of the reasons why those researchers were a little bit hesitant to call it a psychad. For one thing, the cone is fairly small. They said only about half a centimeter long, which is smaller than what we typically see in psychad cones. That's very small. That is very tiny. And the arrangement of pollen sacs, so the sacs that hold the pollen, they described this genus has only two pollen sacs per scale of the cone, whereas today's cycads tend to have between 20 and 700 okay. pollen sacs per scale. All right, so this this one was packing lightly. So this one did... Also, it's very tiny. Yeah. I don't know if that affected that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, how would they fit more? <laughs> very, very few pollen sacs per scale. This is very exciting, number one, because confirming the identity of a previously described species, but also because it shows us this well-preserved cycad from the late Cretaceous that is quite different in some ways from cycads that we have today, even in its cone morphology, which suggests that there may have been more diversity in the shapes and maybe even lifestyles of cycads in the past that isn't represented today, which, of course, like so many things in the fossil record, means that we can't just say cycads as we have them today are a good stand-in for what they may have been like back in the Cretaceous period. Absolutely. Uh, which isn't horribly surprising, because like I always assume when it's like, no, this lineage has been around for a while, but there was, you know, was likely a diversity back then. It's like, oh, then surely there were hugely different... Right, weird ones. Weird ones, and just... Uh, uh, unique diversities that we don't see or in a way we don't see it where they're living in the same place but did it a different way mm -hmm. so it's not hugely surprising but it is neat to start to get an insight into how they might have been different right well because that's very difficult to predict if you yes. say well they may have looked very different back then well then how did they look well i don't know there's don't literally have, all of the fossils. options <laughs> and in fact in the article uh one of the authors is quoted as as talking about that we are missing out on this early diversity of cycads, or we don't have a good idea of what that diversity was like. Partially, that might be due to the fact that we just don't have a lot of fossils from back, from from cycads of that time. But they also make the interesting point that another thing that could contribute to us not understanding them as well is that there may be plants that have been misidentified. Yes. Especially if they have weird features that we don't see in modern cycads. We may have more cycad fossils than we realize, but like this one, if we only have a few bits and pieces and they're weird, we might not be able to say that's a cycad until we find something more complete and go, oh, that is weird, but it's a weird cycad. Yes, exactly. That that diversity, that that increased diversity in anatomy and in lifestyle might actually make it a little harder for us to recognize that very diversity. Yeah, that we it falls outside of the recognizable box that we have for what a psychad is. Right. 
until we find the right parts to go, oh, actually, that does belong in here. Which happens all the time when we are finding the the early histories or lineages or new members of a group where we go, oh, that you look like this. And then finally someone goes, actually, if you look at the ankles, no, mm-hmm. that can't be that group. That has to be this other group that it looks nothing at all like. Yes. See early evolution of whales yep. <laughs> where we go, actually, <laughs> believe it or not. That, something weird. This is not what it we would expect from this group, but yeah, this is now within the range of diversity of this group we should start expecting. <laughs> yes. So a very cool discovery uh, that comes from uh, one tiny little little plant cone. Very cool. Cycads are gymnosperms. Gymnosperms have a lot of cool stuff going for them, including an extremely deep evolutionary history. But you know what gymnosperms don't have? Yeah. Fruit. Nope, they sure don't. They don't make fruit. Flowering plants make fruit. And for more about that, Segway Masters, (laughs) we're going to wrap up the news and head over into our main episode discussion about fruit, which means that after this short break, we will be joined once again by our favorite and most recurring guest, Dr. Ali Baumgartner, who is going to regale us with scientific insights into the diversity and history of fruit We are going to learn a whole bunch of stuff that we were wrong about. Yep. Stay tuned. Hello, Allie. Hello, David. Welcome back. Thank you again, as always, for being here. We're always delighted to have you come by and teach us stuff about plants. And we know that a bunch of our listeners are excited to hear you, as always, as well. I'm so excited to be here. I can't express. (laughs) Now, before we get into the actual topic, uh, you should probably reintroduce yourself because your introduction has changed because you have recently gone through some major life changes. <laughs> Fundamentally, I'm a, I live in a new time zone now. So hello, my name is Dr. Allie Baumgartner, and I am a collection manager of vascular plants at the University of Michigan Herbarium. Congratulations on a successful move and a fancy new position. Cool. I am a cool kid now. Um, I'm very excited because I am from Michigan. I did my undergrad in Michigan. Uh, and it's just very funny to be back at the institution I did my undergrad from uh, because people know who I am. The librarian of the, in the herbarium recognized <laughs> me from when I was an undergrad when she worked at the library in the Natural History Museum because I would hide there to study when I was a student. Wow. <laughs> you are a very memorable person. Uh, clearly. <laughs> I wasn't even talking that. I was hiding in the library. So... <laughs> Well, congratulations on that. And again, thank you for joining us. This is episode 165, which means we are back on plants. And this time, our topic requested by our listeners is fruit. Which is potentially our most delectable episode topic. (gasps) Is this the tastiest episode? I mean, we've done a lot of animal episodes. I mean, yeah, and meat's good. Meat's good. But, you know, fruit's pretty, pretty. It's up there pretty tasty one of the best parts about taking botany classes is that for many of them the final project was a potluck where you were trying to get as many plant groups as possible (laughs) that's awesome well uh listeners uh feel free to submit your suggestion for what you think the tastiest episode topic of the podcast has been (laughs) yes in the meantime 
Allie, let's get into our discussion, starting off, as usual, with a very simple question uh, that we'll see how simple the answer turns out to be. Please explain to us, what is a fruit? I love this question, because it does seem like one of those questions that's like, yeah, super simple. Everyone knows what a fruit is, and it's, of course, not. Yeah, well, they're, they're not vegetables. Yeah, it's the stuff that's not vegetables. I had a conversation with my dad about this yesterday, about how there's no such thing as a vegetable. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, botanically, there's no such thing as a vegetable. You know, culinarily, we, there is. So <laughs> Your dietician so, would disagree. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> there are different definitions <laughs> yes. of the word fruit. Correct. So please, yes, uh, enlighten us. Okay, so botanically speaking, so as the... Herbarium collection manager, when I'm talking about fruit, what I mean by that is the seed-bearing structure of angiosperm, so flowering plants, formed from the fertilized ovaries of flowers. It's really simple, right? Sure. But that includes a lot of things that people who aren't ensconced in botany might <laughs> not uh, think of as a, as a fruit. So botanically, it's pretty straightforward. Culinarily, fruits tend to be mostly sweet, sometimes sour, and fleshy fruits. Right. Nuts tend to be hard and not sweet and in shells, which we'll see how that differs from the botanical uh, explanation in a bit. Vegetables are any plant part that doesn't fall into one of those two categories. Sure. And then you also have grains, cereal grains, which are things like wheat, rice, and barley. And most of those things, with the exception of some of the vegetables, are actually fruits. Oh, yeah, yeah. They would so, be. So there is a scientific definition of fruit. Yes. That is like an, a nice, straightforward, anatomical definition. Yes, checklist. And then there is the sort of everyday human use you, uh, version of the word fruit, which is kind of whatever we decided we wanted it to be. There are tax reasons why there is a culinary distinction between fruits and vegetables. Like, it's it's not... It's yeah. It's just it's just for money because I can't remember which one. It, I think fruits are tax tax higher than vegetables or whatever it is. And so yeah, tomatoes because mm. of tomatoes. Somebody had to make a decision for tax purposes. Is this is this a fruit or a vegetable? And I, I think that explains a lot. Well, and you know that there were instances of like companies lobbying to get it one way or yeah. the other because of those taxes. Like, yeah, exactly. That's very likely why some of them are miscategorized because they went, whoa, we can save how much on taxes if it's a vegetable? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Eat your veggies, kids. Well, yeah. And so fruits colloquially are anything that's, well, not anything, but are the sweet, are the sweet versions. So like no one is going to say that an apple is a vegetable. Like we yeah, all right. agree an apple is a fruit, but a cucumber you know, I could probably, mm -hmm. you might have a moment of, oh, I'm not sure about that. So, but we can get into like right, the right. specifics. So yeah. because our podcast is mostly about science, we will uh, <laughs> stray from the everyday confusing version and go with the nice academic science version, which is never confusing. Yes. Never, never confusing. So <laughs> following this, tra this trajectory, uh, what does a fruit look like? What is the structure, the, the technical structure of a fruit? So before I could talk to you about fruits, I actually have to, for one moment, talk about flowers. Because Great. the whole point of flowers is to make fruit. Like, that's genuinely the point of them. And that's part of the definition of a fruit, is that it is the seed-bearing structure formed from the fertilized ovaries of flowers. So I'm just gonna very quickly go over the female parts of a flower. So that's the carpal. 
So I am going to have you imagine with me an idealized carpal. So imagine a bowling pin. Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the top of the bowling pin, where it's like, you know, kind of is a little bit bigger, a little bit rounder, is the stigma. So that is the part of the carpal that catches the pollen. The neck, um, so the narrow part in the middle, that is the style. And that is where the pollen tube grows down. And then the base of the bowling pin is the ovary. And that's where the seeds develop. So within the ovary, we've got a lot of different parts. So I'm going to have you imagine again. (laughs) This time, we're imagining the inside of a bell pepper. Because it's kind of the platonic ideal (laughs) of a fleshy fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So inside of a bell pepper, you have in that middle, that's kind of attached to the uh, stem... That white, like, weird, different texture bit, uh, that's the placenta of the fruit. The slightly fibrous? Yeah, it's like, it's a different texture than the rest of the bell pepper. Um, That, yeah, it's like... Spongy, almost. It's spongy. It's like, almost like a foam texture. Yeah, that's the placenta. So all of the seeds, uh, those are the ovules, the seeds are attached to that by these little strands called funiculae that I probably won't mention again, but I think it's such a good term. Um, <laughs> funicular strands. I love it. You'll have that that white, uh, like, spongy tissue that'll kind of go up the sides, and you know, the part that you cut out. So that is differentiate, differentiating the different chambers of the bell pepper. And those chambers are the locules. And how many locules there are is important for distinguishing different types of fruits. Hmm. And with that go back to the sections of the ovary uh like like at the bottom of the the yeah yeah so that's so in the ovary the ovary can be divided up into multiple parts with in each part you'll have a, however many um different seats cool yeah so the outside part the ovary wall is called the pericarp so that's the outside the skin of the of the fruit and that has three parts. <laughs> and in the most science way, these are what they're called. The exocarp, which means outer fruit. The mesocarp, which means middle fruit. And the endocarp, which is the inner fruit. And I love it. I love names like that that take zero thinking. Yes. Classic. <laughs> so those are, broadly speaking, the parts of a fruit. But, obviously, we can't stop there. (laughs) This is a whole Venn diagram of how these things fit together. So, within fruits, there are three categories. There's more than three categories. But there are, in one method of divvying up fruits, you can divide them into three categories. Simple fruits, aggregate fruits, and multiple fruits. Okay. And I learned, when looking this up, that... The English language definitions for aggregate and multiple are the reverse of most other languages. Hmm. Of course it is. <laughs> yes. I went down this, this like citation rabbit hole and all goes back to one guy who got it backward. Oh, no. And then we just have never fixed it. So, <laughs> yeah. In English does it, like, we define aggregate and multiple differently to pretty much everyone else. Well, if that person, if there is an afterlife, that person must be like, no, 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 <laughs> Why am I known for this? Somebody flip it. Somebody flip it. 
So, uh, simple fruit is kind of what you would expect. It is a single fruit formed from a single ovary from a single flower. So an example of this would be like a lemon. Okay. Simple fruit. Sure. An aggregate fruit is a fruit formed from more than one ovary in a single flower. Okay. Okay, so multiple ovaries come together to form a fruit. Yes, and so an example of that is a raspberry. Okay. Oh. So uh, that was from a, a single flower, but those are many little ovaries, and each ovary is making up the little parts right. of the raspberry. Each of the little water balloons. <laughs> yes, and we'll get into that, what they actually are in a bit. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, they are not technically known as water balloons. Um, and I know, missed opportunity. And then finally, you have multiple fruits. And so those are formed from multiple flowers, so an inflorescence, so that's a cluster of flowers, that merge together into an infructescence. So this is multiple flowers forming into a singular, basically compound fruit. And examples of that are a pineapple or a fig. Pineapple is going to be my guess. I was going to say, I was going to say, as soon as... Would, as would be soon as I is. said pineapple, David's face lit up. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. So, so, so if you look at the outside of a, of a pineapple, basically each one of those scales was a different flower. Gotcha. Wow. Cool. It all comes together. That makes it like the slime mold of fruits where it's just like, <laughs> we got a whole bunch of nuclei in here. We're just, we are one being. <laughs> yes, exactly. In addition to that weirdness... There's also, and this is something that I think people are are often familiar with as like a botanical fun fact, accessory fruits. So accessory fruits are when the, particularly in fleshy fruits, uh, when the tissue comes from parts that are not the ovary. Right, right. So when they're using other bits. So um, this is especially common in like apples and pears. Most of the flesh, like the vast majority of the flesh of an apple, is from the hypanthium, which is the floral cup. It's not from the ovary, it's from the cup of the flower. Strawberries. The actual, like, flesh of a strawberry is from the receptacle, which is the base of the flower. So again, like, we're e- those are both parts of the flower that aren't the ovary. Yeah. And then the cashew. Cashew does wild things. Have you ever seen... A picture of a cashew, like a like on the tree cashew. I don't know that I have. Okay, so and <laughs> all right, this, this is the best way I can describe it. I'm so sorry, audio medium. I am doing my best. <laughs> so basically, it's like an oversized cashew shape at the top because it's got a basically shell to it, and then underneath that is basically equal size, uh, like part that looks like. Almost like a bell pepper. Huh. Right. Like, it's bright red underneath it. And that is the cashew apple. So it's what's called a hypocarp. It is below the fruit. And it is just flesh. Like, it's just tasty, tasty fruit. No seeds. It's a treat, I guess. Like, I... It's weird. Huh. But apparently it's really tasty. Why aren't we eating those, then? They all... People are. Just not us. Well, why am I not eating those, then? <laughs> Why is no one ever getting one? I, I wonder if it's hard to ship. Um, so I, I guess already the surprising thing about this is that there are many ways to make a fruit. That a fruit is technically the fleshy, tasty thing 
with seeds inside. Yes. Because, and we'll get into the function of fruits later, but the tastiness of a fruit is not an accident. That's kind of the point of a fruit. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. Exactly. Yes. Yep. But that there are many what you can, that, that plants can use a variety of different parts of the flower in a variety of different ways to achieve that same uh, structure, that same kind of structure. Yeah. And, and we'll get into just genuinely how diverse uh, fruit are because uh, I was impressed. Like Angie's firms, they're doing great. Shall we get into that now? Yes, please. Please give us a sense. And now uh, we'll remind you, Allie, uh, you know you're a regular on the podcast. We only have so long uh, <laughs> to be on here. So please give us a, a general tour of the diversity of modern fruits. What do fruits look like? I need everyone to know that, like, I am obsessed with telling people about fruits. (laughs) One of my favorite stories was when I pinned our friend Nate against a refrigerator to explain to him the different kinds of berries. So, like, y'all, I have been living for this moment. This is going to start with A, apples. and (laughs) (laughs) I could, but I won't. I was asked very nicely not to do that. Um, So, to frame this... Keep in mind, through this entire discussion, all angiosperms make fruits. Mm-hmm. That's the point. <laughs> like, like they're called flowering plants. And flowers are what where fruits come from. Yeah, as you said, that's the point of a flower. Yes, the point of a flower is to make a fruit. The point of a fruit is to be dispersed. And we're going to get into what that means because, like many people, basically before I started really diving into you know, botany when I was in college... I had a very food centric like, <laughs> view of what a fruit is. So we're going to we're going to dispel that today. So, I already divvied them up into simple uh, aggregate and multiple and we'll kind of touch on that periodically, but actually the main way to divide fruits is into two different types: dry fruit and fleshy fruit. And I'm actually going to start with the dry fruit because we're going to start with the things that like you're less familiar with, and then we're going to end in like a comfortable, <laughs> a comfortable place. And also, yeah, there's a, the diversity of dry fruits is actually pretty impressive. So when we get into the category of dry fruits, then there's another question: dehiscent or indehiscent? Of so course. do you know what that means? No. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure. Those are made up words. <laughs> they. Oh, man, I gotta say, a lot of words in botany do feel made up. So, <laughs> all words made up. Uh, dehiscent and indehiscent. So basically, what that is referring to is whether or not the fruit splits when it is mature in order to release the seeds. Okay. 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 So yeah. if it is dehiscent, then it will dehiss, which apparently means that it opens. <laughs> all right. Cease and dehist. <laughs> and then indehiscent means that it does not. So okay. the seed will have to remove itself some other way. So we're going to start with the indehiscent rye fruits. So the first type, and here's the thing, right? A lot of these, it's like, are these separate categories? Is this a type of this other one? Unclear. I made a judgment call based on what I was taught and what felt right to me. So if this is not quite the same as what you were taught. I am sorry. It's biology. It's wiggly. We're trying. Uh, we are making artificial boxes for things. We sure are. <laughs> so the first type is an akene. Have you ever heard of an akene? Mm-mm. 
Mm-mm. That's also I a made-up so. word. I, it, oh, we're going to get some great made-up words of this. So an akene is monocarpalate. So it's a single carpal forming this, and it is one seed. And it is pretty much the simplest type of fruit that you can have. So akenes are often mistaken for seeds because the pericarp, so the basically the outside of the ovary, is really hard. Um, and so it's basically like a candy shell. Covering the seed. And so this is going to be things like quinoa or the seeds of a strawberry. So the fruit of of the strawberry is actually the akin, which are those seeds on the outside. So the fleshy part is is something different. Yeah, because you said it came from... accessory fruit. Yes. That's right. Uh-huh. Oh, so, oh it's, strawberries are lies. So oh, each man. one of those is a little fruit with a seed yes. inside. Yes. Held together by this accessory fruit. Oh, man. We're already getting weird. <laughs> I know, right? I have shared a picture for you to put on in the blog post. Excellent. I, I am prepared. I'm a professional. That shows a strawberry with the Akeens sprouting. Whoa, yes. Yeah. So you have, (laughs) David's face is delightful. So you have the strawberry and then you have like little leaves coming off of all of the little akines because those are all seeds. Oh, cool. I I did learn that at one point, which also means that if you're trying to get like just number of fruits in in a meal, strawberries. If you eat strawberry, that will that will up a lot of fruit. That's a lot of fruits. Fruits per bite. Yes. Yes, this is so true. Strictly just numerically. (laughs) Yes, not by mass. (laughs) So one of the fruits you're probably most familiar with, even if you didn't necessarily know it was a fruit, are caryopsis. So caryopsis, I was wondering if I was going to get any look of recognition, not even a little bit. (laughs) The opposite, in fact. Exactly. I know coralopsis. (laughs) But I, which is winter hazel, but I don't know what caryopsis is. No, you're, you're close, but not at all close at all. So, uh, <laughs> so it's also uh, monocarpalate, so it's a single carpal, uh, indehiscent, and it is one seed. It's very similar to a nakeen, can be easily mistaken for a nakeen. But as opposed to having like the candy shell, like the hardened perico- pericarp, in caryopsis, the pericarp is actually fused to the seed coat. Oh. So it also means it can very easily be, staken, be mistaken for a seed. That's often true of dry fruits. Caryopsis are the, are the fruit of grasses. Oh. So wheat, rice, corn, all of those are caryopsis. That's gotcha. the, the oats. The grains. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Grains are caryopsis. Okay, cool. yeah, yeah. So they're not seeds. They're a fruit. Yeah. It was, and that and it's 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 an understandably confusing dis- distinction because like there is a seed in that fruit, but that whole thing is not a seed. It is a fruit, and so like I can absolutely see why it's very easy to to to, to get get that confusion going. Well, especially considering like I like I said before, like the point of a fruit is to disperse the seed, and so those are they're a package deal in many ways. Yes. So another one that you're 100% not familiar with, mm-hmm. but you are you have definitely seen them is Cipsella. So when we're getting into like weird names, I think that's up there as one of the weirdest. So monocarpalate, single carpal, indehiscent, one seed, similar to their friends the um, caryopsis and the akine, 
These are specifically fruits of the Asteraceae, so the daisy family. Hmm. They're very similar to Akeens, and they often have uh, an additional structure, like a pappus, to assist with dispersal. So like a dandelion. They have these little things coming off of them in order to disperse. So yeah, dandelions have Cipsella. Gotcha. Cool. Right? So it's like, oh, I, you have seen these things, but you haven't thought of them as fruits. Yes. You can't eat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably could, but you wouldn't be happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, that's the kind of the distinction that I really want to emphasize with the dry fruits. Next one, nuts. Have you heard of those? Sure. I, yeah. <laughs> those are great. So they're also monocarpalate, they're indehiscent, and they're single seed. There is a fundamental difference between culinary nuts and botanical nuts. It's kind of like the biological term for a bug and the colloquial term for a bug yes Um, a lot more (laughs) a lot more things are called nuts than are actually nuts so nuts have a hard exocarp like that's that's the thing like it is a very hard skin and they often have associated structures like cupules so the acorn caps like the brown part the bottom of the acorn is actually the fruit part and the cap is just a little associated structure. It's not the fruit. Yeah, it's right. for holding on to stuff. Yeah, it's decorative. It's not an accessory fruit, but it is an accessory part yes. to the fruit. Right. Yes. Weird. Yes. It's, it's, it's bonus. And so that's something you'll see in acorns, but you'll also see that in um, like chestnuts. Okay. The outer part of chestnuts. Um, so acorns are nuts. Chestnuts are nuts. A lot of other things are not actually nuts. Like walnuts, not nuts. Uh, right. <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> I know. They're, basically, they're all lies. <laughs> I bet you've heard of a Samara. Sure. I've heard that. I, I feel like I've heard that word, but I, I have no info yeah, to go along with, with it. With respect to maples, probably. Hmm. So the maple seeds, like the fruits of a maple, the helicopter, are often called Samaras. They're technically not Samaras, though. <laughs> they're Samara-shaped, though. Um, so a Samara is technically a winged akeen. So it is an akene with a extension of the pericarp, these winged extension of the pericarp. And we see these in ashes, elms, tulip trees, not maples. Mm-hmm. They look like them, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So this, like the dandelion, is one of those examples that you alluded to before, that fruits are for dispersal. And we often yes. think of that meaning an animal eats it. Swallows the seeds, goes for a long walk, poops out the seeds, and voila, the thing is dispersed. But that fruits can function as dispersal mechanisms without having to be eaten. That you have things that yes. ride on the wind and, and f- glide away from their parent plant. Plants do not need animals. Sometimes they're nice to have around, but right. they do not need them. <laughs> this is a strong independent phylum. Snap in Z formation. Yes! <laughs> Yes. Uh, and then the last of the indehiscent dry fruits are your schizocarps. So these are your split fruits, and these are two or more fused carpels. Okay. So they can break into typically um, one-seeded units called mericarps. So there's one from each carpel, and that's actually what a maple is, because you can break them into their, uh, like, distinct units. They're split down the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are semeroid schizocarps. Okay, of course. (laughs) Obviously. Um, So, like, vetch can do that. Some mints can do that. So 
there you go. Those are the indehiscent, um, so they don't break open when they're grown-ups, dry fruits. So the indehiscent dry fruits sounds like a bunch of stuff that colloquially we would look at and either call it just a seed. Yes. Or call it a nut. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep, there you go. <laughs> so category two, the, the ones that break. The dehiscent. The dehiscents. Yes, the dehiscent dry fruit. So one of the things that we're going to run into, particularly in this category, is you are probably familiar with this, but you are familiar with the seed. Hmm. Because they break open. <laughs> and so you are more likely to see the seed than the fruit itself. So the first category is the capsule. So they are multicarpalate. So there are multiple ovaries, multiple carpals that are making this. They can also be indehiscent. Typically they are dehiscent. And they have multiple seeds. They ha can have many, many seeds. So capsule means it's a small box that opens to release the seeds. It can be a lid that comes off. It can be a slit in the side, like a valve that opens. One of the best examples of this are poppies. Okay. If you've ever seen um, a poppy capsule, like you've seen like a poppy seed muffin, right? Mm -hmm. The number of poppy seeds in that. Poppy seeds are tiny. So they come out of these like, okay, genuinely it looks a lot like a pill capsule. That's There's a reason <laughs> those are called that. And it looks, a, they're about... Similar size, eh, not quite the same shape, but a similar shape. And basically the lid, it's like a pot, and the lid will come off and all of these tiny seeds will come out. So like, they mean business. Brazil nuts. So the Brazil nut itself is a seed. I learned that from friends. <laughs> <laughs> but Brazil nuts come out of a capsule. Okay. Okay. And you have probably never seen the capsule. I had never seen it until I started uh, looking stuff up. <laughs> so so there are things that are botanically nuts that we call nuts. And then there are things mm -hmm. that are fruits that are technically not nuts, but we call them nuts. But then there are also things that we call nuts that are just the seed and not a fruit at all. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Yep, of course. Just keeping track. <laughs> it's so, so, so obvious. So next is the follicle. So a follicle is, so the problem with some of these is that, like, there are such esoteric descriptions that, like, genuinely, I will try my best. Pictures <laughs> are very helpful. I'm so sorry. This is an audio medium. I'm trying my best. There will be a blog post with some photos to help out. So a follicle is unilocular. So we talked about that. What's a locule? Pop quiz. That's the space inside the fruit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the chamber. So these have a single chamber. It's single carpal, single chamber, dehiscent, so it opens up and has multiple seeds. Often it's kind of pocket-shaped. It doesn't have to be, but the prime example of this is milkweed. Okay. So milkweed splits open and just explodes everywhere. You have all of these, like, little, um, kind of like hairs. Side note, I work in a herbarium now. I work with modern plants. And so I was working, sorting, and filing um, plants of the U.S. and Canada. And I came across Asclepius milkweed. Oh man, I had to be so careful because it was mounted with a with a the the follicle had dehisced. So like there were seeds trying to come out of this thing, and I did not want them to disperse in the herbarium. <laughs> so I had to be very careful and just like make sure like I didn't disturb it because it was glued down. But like seeds are going to disperse yo and yeah. they didn't want it to be free cool um so getting into things you're probably familiar with 
Ever heard of a legume? Yes. Yeah. Beans and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So, monocarpalate, single carpal, multiple seeds. This is where we really get into that trouble of you are more familiar with the seed than the fruit. Mm-hmm. So a bean, a pea, etc. Those are seeds. The actual pea pod is the fruit. Okay. Oh. So it's, it's a fruit that contains several seeds, but the seeds themselves are big and tasty. Yes, exactly. Because, I mean, they, they have to have all of the nutrients for the, the seed to become a plant. Sure, sure. Episode 135. Yeah. So it's it's they're very nice. They split right around along a line. If you've ever, like, you know shelled peas you know you pull the string and you can open them right up that again is a feature not a bug (laughs) that's when we talk about the splitting dry fruits the dehiscent Mm -hmm. fruits that they have a natural line of breakage to allow the seeds to come out yeah and like so we've been talking about the ones that we eat um so they are very fleshy they're very palatable to us mammals but if you think about other kinds of legumes like kentucky coffee tree those are way leather, leatherier, more leathery. That's a better way to say it. <laughs> They're more leathery versus, uh, like, Circus canadensis is redbud. Redbud um, has very papery, very dry little fruit pods. Honey locust has very dry fruit pods. So, you know, we happen to be familiar with the ones are, that are a little bit, little bit more palatable to us. But, like, some of them can be pretty much leather. Mm-hmm. Huh. And finally, one of the, I had to double check how to say this because it's like, I don't think I've heard it since I was taught this, uh, a salique. So these are bicarpalate. There are two carpels um, with multiple seeds. And similar to a capsule, they have two valves. So basically two parts, you know, the, the one carpel, two carpel, and they split open in order to reveal the seeds. And so these are pretty much exclusive to the fruits of brassicaceae. Uh, so to brassica, which is the magical fruit vegetable. Uh, so this is broccoli and cabbage and Brussels sprouts and kale and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if you took your broccoli, because those are flowers, and you let those flowers actually flower and then make a little fruit, those fruits that your broccoli would make would be uh, Salik. Gotcha. And so that's, so that is our tour of the dry fruits. And it's very interesting just how unfamiliar those are, with the exception of nuts, because we mm. actually eat those, well, you know, in legumes. Nuts and legumes are familiar. All of those other ones, with the exception of maybe the Samara, most people would have absolutely no familiarity with them at all. Or even if they're familiar, not categorize them in their brain as a fruit. Right. Exactly. Like, I remember specifically when I was taking botany classes and I was shown, you know, yes, these are the fruits of a maple. And, like, if I say, oh, yeah, this is a fruit of a maple, your brain is going to be like, what, like an apple? Mm -hmm. Right. And then I show you these Samara and you're like, that does not... That does not check out. This is not what I was expecting. No one calls them dandelion fruits. Right. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, So you remember we talked about the infrutescence and I was like, aha, pineapple is what's in my brain. And then you said pineapple and I felt super validated. What's a peanut? 
because yes, thank you. That was gonna be my question. Several times you described something, and I went, "Oh, like a peanut." Yeah, is this is where the peanut's gonna show up. And then you didn't say peanut, and I feel not validated. <laughs> and so I'm very curious to know where, and I assume it's one of the dry fruits. Uh, where in this category peanuts fall? So can confirm that a peanut is a legume, and that makes sense if you look at it right, because uh, it, like the shell of a peanut pretty like hard and leathery and it splits open mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, it's got that nice split down the middle kind of like a peepaw that same yes. sense that yes. this is a peanut is a surprisingly well it's like you know for me my, my family uh we would get together for the holidays and at most holidays there'd be a big bowl of nuts mm-hmm. and there'd be yes. walnuts and there'd be chestnuts and sometimes there'd be peanuts and i remember as a kid always remarking to myself how distinctly easy it is to open a peanut yep because you've got all these other nuts. Just, so many nuts are a real struggle. You just pinch the peanut shell. That you just ask the peanut to open and it very yeah. nicely falls apart for you. Well, I mean, so I saw this picture while I was um, going through all this stuff. And it was talking about, oh, what was it? Like the anatomical diversity of a bowl of nuts. Mm, cool. Mm-hmm. And just like how many different types of fruits those actually are. Yes. Right? Because you have nuts in a, you know, you have mixed nuts. You have nuts in there. You have, you're, de- depending on what you put in there, peanuts, or if you decided to be, I don't know, like edamame or something in there, like that's straight up a legume. But then we're going to get into like some of those things that are in a nut, mixed nuts are actually fleshy fruits. Mm-hmm. You're just eating the seed. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. We're going to get into bananas. I, I was going to, I've been waiting for bananas to come up. We're going to have a whole field day don't with worry. bananas. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See now. Now, I feel validated with the peanut because I learned that they were legumes from Cats Don't Dance. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you (laughs) and your secret botanical knowledge over there. An elephant taught me that. So the remaining category uh, is the fleshy fruits, which I am led to believe will be a bunch of fruits that you will say, and we will all collectively say, yes, correct, that is a fruit. I dearly hope so. Like, I don't, <laughs> let's hear it. I, I don't see. think. We're going to find out. Let's, let's meet the fleshy fruits. Find out how much fruit okay. people are eating in their diet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so there were oh, maybe about a dozen different types of dry fruits. There are, broadly speaking, three categories of fleshy fruits. Great. Mm. Yeah, so there's some subcategories within there, but by and large... You got three types, berry, droop, and poem. Okay. How many have you heard of? I mean, poem, is poem where apples are? Yeah. I took French. Okay. All right. Uh, Berries make sense. And then droop (laughs) is uh, the other one. Yeah, correct. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So we're going to start with droops, actually. So I love them. So droops can be fleshy or fibrous. So there's a bunch of things that are fibrous droops that are often ca- like called nuts, just to make everything really fun and simple over here. So droops can be either fleshy or fibrous. They have a single carpal, so single ovary, single carpal, one, sometimes two seeds, and that's pretty much it. So like from a strict, simple definition, like... Simple, single carpal, single seed, sometimes more than that. That's basically it. So dry droops, we'll start with that since we're, we're coming off of the <laughs> list of dry fruits. So dry droops are called trima. And some, some places I was looking, 
lumped these in with with the fleshy groups. Some of them split it out. I was taught that they were all the same thing, and so that is how I'm teaching it. <laughs> so they have a thin exocarp and a hardened fib- fibrous mesocarp, so that middle layer, uh, and then a hard endocarp. And that hard endocarp is really important for groups. So examples of this are like a walnut, which makes a whole lot of sense. If you've ever, if you have ever, as a child or an adult, but I did as a child, tried to break open a walnut and then regret <laughs> everything mm-hmm. you've ever done. Um, it has a very thin outer level layer that's pretty hard, and that that fibrous bit in the middle, and then um, the hard uh, endocarp in the middle. So that includes walnut. The coconut. Yes. Right, I want to talk about coconuts. Okay. Because we have all been bet- uh, betrayed by portrayals of coconuts. <laughs> because pictures of coconuts are literally only so- showing you the seed. Yes. The brown, so you, the brown part. It, that yeah, big so brown that, thing, that's the seed. That is the seed. And that's why you have like the like the meat of the coconut. Like that's that's all the tasty stuff for the seed to make a new palm tree or coconut, whatever. It's not a tree. It's a palm. <laughs> but that is just the seed. The rest of the coconut is the fruit. And so it is much bigger. And you've, like, if you've ever, okay, I was going to say two things. It's like, if you've ever seen a coconut palm or you've, you've played a, a, a video game like uh, Breath of the Wild <laughs> or <laughs> some of the Assassin's Creed yep, <laughs> video yeah. games, like, you've seen. How huge the coconuts are when they're on the palm. And so there's this, there's this large, basically shell, this fibrous shell that's on the outside of the coconut. That, that is the reason why coconuts are considered droops. It's because you have been lied to mm-hmm. by big palm. I don't know. <laughs> um, and you're only getting to see the seed. So this, that was always very confusing to me. They're like, Oh, it's a droop. And that's because I wasn't. Anyway, no one showed me the whole coconut. Right, right. But pecans are also dry droops. Almonds are also dry droops. Macadamia nuts are dry droops. So all everything in here, with the exception of coconut that has nut in the name, but no one calls it a nut. But like pecan, almond, macadamia nut, walnut, all of those are considered nuts. None of them are nuts. They're all droops. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Right? I... When I got done taking uh, the first botany class that I learned all these things, I did give in to the temptation of getting mixed nuts and categorizing like, what type <laughs> of fruit they were actually from. Yes. Um, and so now we're going to get into the actual fleshy fruits that y'all are familiar with. So droops. So fleshy droops. They have this very thin exocarp, so the thin skin. Fleshy mesocarp. That's the tasty bit. That's the reason you're eating it. And then a hard endocarp. Why they're called stone fruits. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, exactly. So these are your peaches, your plums, your cherries. They tend to have a pit mm-hmm. in the middle. So that is, like, these are droops. They have the flesh on the outside and they have a pit in the middle. We're going to get into the weirdness. So raspberries are an aggregate of droplets. But Every, uh-huh, every little water balloon of a raspberry is actually a droop. It has a single seed inside. Oh, so it's a collective of droops. Yes. It is. An, well, hold on. It's an aggregate it's of an dro- aggregate. droops, not to be confused with a mulberry, which is a multiple of drooplets. Oh, <laughs> all right. It's all making sense now. <laughs> uh, right? This is, this is why I like 
corner people like let me tell you the good word about fruits because it is absurd like it is wild it is pedantic and i love it so much so yes we have droops aggregates of droplets multiples of droplets like we got we can explain anything cool also droplet is i I can't put my finger on adorable term it is a very nice term yes it is look at all these little droplets exactly they're adorable uh berries i think berries are my favorite type of fruit and it's because there is the most variation within berries um they are super variable they can have one seed they can have more seeds they typically have more seeds so there are three categories of berries so there's the true berries which have this very thin skin that thin uh exocarp and then they are fleshy all the way through so they don't have that hardened endocarp like you have in the droops. Um, they are fleshy all the way through. So it's going to be the things like tomatoes and grapes and bananas. Like the things that you could just like, you can bite into that and you're not going to get any sort of resistance unless you happen to run into one of many seeds. Mm-hmm. Avocados are berries. All right. And the, re- and the reason for that, because I was like, that just doesn't feel right sounds like a droop Mm -hmm. i was thinking when you were describing droops i was i thought of a yes yes right and the reason it is not is because it lacks that hard endocarp so the pit of a um the pit of an avocado is straight up just the seed there's it's not a hard coating right it is just a hard seed yes it is just the seed yes so because the because avocados are basically squishy the whole way through that means it is a berry even though it only has one seed right and it's kind of the reason why there is the sometimes it's one seed but normally it's more right because some people just don't like that explanation it's like i don't care that it's technically like fleshy all the way through (laughs) it doesn't feel right to call it a berry the same thing with bananas like if you've ever had like a wild type banana they do have lots of seeds in them yep We've just, you know, domesticated them so that you don't have to deal with uh, biting into a, a hard seed when you are having a banana. Right. So, yeah, bananas are berries. Weird. Tomatoes are berries. Also weird. Yeah. In fact, none of the things that I mentioned, tomatoes, grapes, bananas, avocados, none of those have berry in the name. Nope. Most of the things that you think of as berries are really not. Um, strawberry is not a berry. Raspberry and mulberry. Raspberry is not a berry. Mulberry. Yeah, no. Most things. <laughs> Blueberries are berries. Ah, that was going to be the one I Great. asked. <laughs> Way to go. Are, so don't worry. Are, that is a berry. Are cherries berries? No, they're droops. Okay. Cool. Oh, yeah. Because they have a stone. Yeah. They got a pit. Yeah. They do, they do. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, all, it's, this... This is why I really enjoy telling people this because there's just so many fun facts. Because the the distance between like culinary day to day colloquial usage of these terms and like actual botanical meanings are pretty separate. Yes. Well, and I which can I think make that, it hard to talk. Well, and I think that it it drives home that point that we mentioned earlier that fruits are <clears throat> a structure that is there to serve the purpose of dispersing the seeds. And not only are there many ways to do that, but there are many ways to achieve the same basic shape of fruit with a different structure. 
that you can have something yes. that has the hard seed in the in the center. And sometimes it's a hard seed with a hard coat over it. And that technically is a different group of plants, but they have grown this fruit that has a structure that's so similar that you can't help but think of it as the yeah. same thing as this other thing. Exactly. Like with, with some of the dry fruits, I talked about it, that they were particular to a given group of plants. Like mm-hmm. this is the fruit we see in Asteraceae, the daisy family. This is the fruit we see in Brassicaceae, the, I don't know, cruciferous vegetable uh, family. But by and large, there's no, like anybody can make any of these. And we're just, we're just trying to make artificial, in many cases, boxes for our little human minds to be like, let us categorize this. And it's not necessarily indicative of any sort of uh, relationships, but we'll get, we'll get to that more. Don't worry. But we have two more types of berries to talk about. <laughs> so my two, my two favorite types of berries are the Hesperidium and the Pepo. So a Hesperidium has a thick leathery exocarp with volatile oil glands in an interior filled with fluid-filled vesicles. Any guesses what those are? Sounds appetizing. Nope. Citrus fruits. Hmm. Oh, yeah, the rind and everything. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So they have that thick, leathery rind. It's full of volatile oil glands. That's why they smell so good. And then um, the reason they have, like, and they have those fluid-filled vesicles on the inside, right? So, like, all of the little, like, I was going to say nuggets, and that's not a good way to describe that. But, like, all of those little units of, Mm -hmm. like, because they're all juice-filled, but they all, they're water balloons. They're basically miniature water balloons. Yeah, yep, yep. I was was waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's all citrus fruits. And, again, this is pretty, like, this is a single group. This is a single family. This is Rutaceae that's making these. So, again, like, sometimes they're, anybody can make it. Sometimes there can only be one. And then finally... This one is the one that throws people off the most, and that's the Pipo. So it has a hard rind exocarp, and then kind of a fibrous, not super, like fibrous to fleshy mesocarp, and many, many seeds. Any idea who this is? Watermelon? Yes, they're melons! Oh, yeah! (laughs) That was my first, I was like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, so cucumbers and squashes and pumpkins and melons, these are all Pipo. Gotcha. And most of these are from Cucurbitaceae, they're from the cucumber family. So again, we're like, we're getting kind of um, constrained with who is making these sorts of fruits. Gotcha. So a watermelon is a berry. Yeah. That's intuitively nonsense. Nice. And a lemon is also a berry. And a lemon is also a berry. Well, great. Yeah. And a grapefruit is a berry. Like, it's just wild, right? Like, these these words, they mean nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, the last group is probably the most fruity, like, stereotypically fruit type of fruit, and that's the poem. Right. So poems are actually very similar to berries. Sometimes they are considered, like, a category of berry because they have multiple seeds. But the important thing is that they have this, all of this accessory tissue. So the actual like ovary design, no, ovary derived part of an apple is the core of the apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that middle part where all the seeds are and that like immediate uh, outside part. So you know how when you like cut an apple in half? And you can kind of see that, like, almost, like, papery outline uh, where the core is and where the flesh is. Mm-hmm. That papery outline, that's the pericarp. Like, that's the that's the ovary wall you're looking at. Gotcha. And so everything outside of that is um, 
accessory tissue. Fun fact that I realized while I was going through this, the way that we think of apples, where you like have the stem at the top, that is upside down <laughs> to the actual orientation of the apple because the stem of the apple is the stalk or pedicel of the flower. And then like the belly button like scale bit that we put on the bottom, those are the sepals. So that's kind of the bottom part of the flower. Mm-hmm. And then the apple formed between there. So the stalk is actually the bottom of mm-hmm. the flower, or like the like the stalk of the flower, which I just thought was interesting. It's upside down. So pears, apple, quince, these are pretty much uh, mostly found in rosaceae, uh, so the rose family. And they're probably what you think of if I said, hey, think of a fruit. You probably think of something like an apple. Right. The classics. Yeah. Yes. Well, and it's also very interesting that, like, when you eat an apple, the part you stop eating at, or at least for, you know, most people, is the actual... The fruit. The actual fruit. The true fruit. You've just eaten through the accessory body. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's very interesting. I, I had that thought, too, that it was like, oh, yeah, the part of the apple that you don't eat is the fruit. Yes. Right. And I just find it very funny. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the the quintessential fruit is not actually the part of it that you eat. Like like, yes. like that exactly. the go to example still has a contradiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there you go. Those uh, that was our quick tour, <laughs> a breeze by a tour of the full extent of of what counts as fruits, which I think is really interesting mm-hmm. because it does drive home both the diversity of fruit shapes, the amount of convergence in different fruit structures forming a very similar shape compared to other fruits. But also the point that we've been making throughout that when you start talking about fruiting bodies in plants, you do, you run into these terminology confusions Yes, where you have, there's all these words that we have an intuitive idea in our head of what that means of what a seed is and what a nut is and what a berry is and what a fruit is. And we've been sort of commenting on it and we're sort of, you know, being very uh, uh, jokey and lighthearted about it because it is funny to comment on. But that kind of terminological difference can be a legitimate barrier to understanding and learning if you're trying to, to teach people here is what different fruiting structures are in plants there is a whole lot of unlearning that has to be done. It's yes. like, all right, yes. you have this word berry in your head. Please forget what that word means so that yes. I can teach you the botanical meaning of that word because it can be very confusing. Already in this yeah. discussion, I know there are tons of people who went into this because I'm one of them with an image in mind of what fruit means. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, completely blown that up. Yeah. And it's, it's genuinely an obstacle. Like, mm-hmm. that is something that I have noticed when I try to talk to people about fruits. This is why I corner people. I'm like, let me tell you about fruits. <laughs> because it does genuinely, you have to give context. You have to go, you have, there's basically two ways to do it, right? So it's like, you either have to give this additional level of background information. It's like, stop, let me give you all of this context for what I'm going to tell you after that. Or... You have to get kind of creative in the way that you talk about things. So, like, maybe not, mm-hmm. like, kind of talking around the fact that, you know, I don't want to have to completely re-educate you on what a berry is. But I do want to, like, talk about these these differences. And it's a, it's, it's a real struggle, especially given that, I think this is something that we've talked about, but it's something, it's a conversation that I've seen uh, repeatedly as a botanist, this 
point that people fundamentally lack knowledge and understanding of plants. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Yeah, it part of it is because like we're animals and so like we can't personally relate to them. Um, but also just in general, the way that a lot of you know science education is set up that you can go real far without having to learn anything more about plants than hey they photosynthesize and that seems complicated we're not going to talk about that right right and that genuinely makes my my job very difficult because <laughs> it's like all right you're gonna have to trust me we're gonna go through this together it's not as scary as you see as you think it is but like oh man it's going to be, we got to go a long way to, to get to the point where I can explain the basics to you because it's not, you aren't, you know, people aren't set up with that understanding and knowledge and like, I have to build it myself. Yeah. It's not common knowledge. A lot of it. Exactly. Well, and as we, it, yeah. we touched on earlier, a big part of the reason why there's all this confusion with terminology when it comes to fruits, to this topic in particular is because there is that sort of general unfamiliarity with with plant anatomy, but we eat these and they are domesticated yes. and they are economically important. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. are extremely familiar of, uh, with them in a completely different context than the scientific yes. context. Yes. Like everyone knows a dandelion. You just didn't know you were looking at the fruit. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, it gave me the the... I had the the question in my head at one point of like, would it be easier or less confusing if we made new terms for the scientific categorization? You know, if we didn't use berry and we didn't use nut, Mm -hmm. you know, so that you didn't have that uh, same term being used in two wildly different contexts. But you would still run into the issue of like, all right, this new term that's not berry includes all these things, some of the berries... But not all of the berries, like you would still have people being like, okay, but yeah. why aren't those in here? Because mm-hmm. even with the description you gave, like we made with the avocado, even with the description yeah. you gave, that makes me think of all these things that you don't put in this group. Because <laughs> even without the overlap of words, you have overlaps of how the fruits look and how we experience yeah. them. Like even if technically the anatomy is different, without that knowledge, I can't. I can't look at an avocado and go, well, obviously, that's not a hard coating around the seed. You know, it, it, yeah. to me, that looks kind of like a peach pit. I can't tell. So, yeah, it, it is a lot of, it is a complicated set of categories, complicated further by our interaction with them as food. Sure, sure. Yeah, because there is so much utility and value to being able to use the types of terms that people are already familiar with when you're teaching about a subject. Mm-hmm. And so wouldn't it be nice if what <laughs> I meant for Barry was something that you already were equipped with, but instead I have to give you a, like, oh, okay, you know this, this, this fruit from a maple. Well, you probably heard it called a Samara, but a Samara is a fundamentally different thing, so it's actually a schizocarp-like it's, you know, yes, let me give you a more complicated name for something that you were already only vaguely familiar with. Yep. We just have to start using the aquarium technique of like calling them sea stars and not starfish and jellies and not jellyfish. To just, yes. We just have to start coming up with slightly but still recognizable versions of the names for the fruits. I mean, so I have this... gotten you to stop saying palm trees, so, you know. Right. <laughs> so this has been the rundown of the diversity of some of that terminology of, of some of that sort of distinction 
in scientific classification. Uh, for people who want to learn more about that, uh, we encourage you to dive deeper. There'll be some stuff in the blog post. But uh, we will now move on to the discussion of fruit evolution and sort of the deep history of fruits. So after the break, we will uh, start asking Ali questions about uh, getting into fruits of the past. Stay tuned. So as we move into the discussion of the origins and evolution and history, the deep history of fruits, we do have to take a moment and discuss what fruits do, because that that is the driving factor behind the evolution of fruits is the function that they are serving for the plants. So Ali, uh, please give us some insights into, uh, we've touched on this. But what, what is the function of fruits? What are fruits there for? In preparing for this, I did go back and check what I had uh, outlined for the seeds episode. Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of overlap. Because the whole point of a fruit is to disperse a seed. So I'm not really going to go into the lo- things that I talked about before. Because sure. if you want to hear me talk about seed dispersal, I've done that before. That's episode 135. But I'm still going to say, again, my favorite quote, which is... A seed must somehow arrive at a location and be there at the time favorable for germination and growth. That is what the fruit is trying to do. It is trying to facilitate this arrival. So I'm going to go a little into things that we mentioned before, but I'm going to go through them rather quickly. So broadly speaking, there are two big categories of dispersal. There is allegory. So External factors are causing this movement, and autocory, which is like the Thanos meme, I'll do it myself. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just what I keep thinking about. Uh, So we'll talk about allegory first. So I've talked about a lot of this before, um, so I'll go through it kind of briefly. So there's anemocory, which is uh, dispersal by wind. Dry fruits in particular are excellent at helping to catch the wind. So your samaras, your follicles, your sipsella, like that's genuinely the point of them. They're trying to catch the wind. These are those fruits that have like your dandelion seeds, Mm -hmm. your winged fruits that are catching the wind, catching the air and floating along. Yes. So like these dry fruits are fantastic for being caught by the wind. Uh, And then you have zucori, which is when animals help you out. Yeah. Finally, some animal discussion on this uh, podcast. Yeah. No, right? Once, <laughs> don't worry, it's this much. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's not entirely true. So, Mermecacori is when they're dispersed by ants. I've talked about this previously. Um, so, sometimes you have um, little tasty bits, little treats for the, the ants that will carry the, the seeds away. I talked about that previously. In Endozucori... That is what, like, that is what you think about when you think about fruits dispersing, nom 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 by an animal, wander away, leave some poop, disperse the seeds. Right. Endo, zoo, cori. Endo, inside, zoo, animals. Mm-hmm. Yes. You are taking the fruit into your body and carrying yep. along that way. Exactly. So, like, fleshy fruits, like raspberries and strawberries, like, you're just popping that whole thing in your mouth and... The seeds are going to pass right straight on through. Sometimes you have dry fruits like 
nuts um, that will be cached. So it's not that they're going through the animal, it's that the plants will release so many of them that the squirrels, the birds, whoever, are going to cache these nuts. They're going to bury them, put them somewhere, and a bunch of them get forgotten about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now they're just in the ground. That's where they wanted to be. Um, And that just leads to germination that way. And that's all we're going to talk about with animals. (laughs) Well, Well, and I think that that part... Uh, just to linger on the animals for a moment, I think that that part really does drive home the fascinating thing about fruits, like we said earlier, that, you know, especially when we come from an animal-centric viewpoint of evolution, so much of evolution is the development of features to avoid getting eaten. Mm -hmm. That is such a big deal for animals, (laughs) for plants, for everything, is... That we have all of this, an entire lifestyle constructed around this beneficial trajectory of not getting eaten. Fruits, not all of them, but the, the fruits that are, are thriving on this endozoochory strategy have gone the complete opposite direction and have evolved structures that are tasty. The point is that this is tasty. Yes. Like, they eat me. It is the point. Please eat this. <laughs> I grew this so that you other species would eat this because we are confident in an evolutionary sense that we did a good enough job building seed coats. <laughs> yes. That those parts are going to be fine. And yeah, we it well, it's very much, a, it's such an odd thing because we talked in the seeds episode, episode 135, and we talked in the eggs episode, episode 92, about, and we talked about this in live birth, which was episode 154 about all the effort that organisms go through to provide nutrition for their offspring. Mm -hmm. Fruits are this bizarre scenario where these plants are constructing nutritional packets for a totally different species. Yes. For some completely other different organisms, here is a nutritional packet for you to trick you into moving my seed somewhere. Which is an yes. utterly fascinating sort of a, a, a flipping on its head what we often think about the trajectory of evolutionary uh, uh, features. Well, and it's fun because that trajectory is why we are so obsessed with fruits. Yes. Like so many other <laughs> yes. things that we put in the grocery store are things that we went, oh, weird. If you do this, it makes it taste like animals don't taste good, so we eat them. Right. <laughs> like, but. Fruits are a thing that was evolved to be eaten. And then we went, okay, yes, please. And we we will do that. We can actually make this even better. Yes. Give us a couple thousand years. We will domesticate (laughs) the heck out of this thing. And we're going to make the uber fruit. Like that's one of the only foods I can think of where it, no, that's the original purpose. (laughs) It was already easy to eat and tasty. Yes. We we (laughs) wanted you to put this in your mouth. (laughs) You made a grocery store around it, which is weird, but that's what we wanted you to do. Plants are great. <laughs> so you did mention that there are other categories of how fruits help for dispersal. Uh-huh. So, like I said, this is the I'll do it myself uh, yes. type of dispersal. Autocore, self-dispersal. They just walk where they want to go. <laughs> well, okay. So I would like to say that I think that from for... I'm giving two examples. One of the examples, I think self might not be the... We'll see. <laughs> Jury's out. Let me see what you think. So there's dispersal by gravity, Vericori. Sure. And at first I was like, that's not self. 
dispersal. You're using gravity, but that's not true. I think I think the plant is doing it. So this is the tendency for fruits to drop to the ground when they are ripe. Oh, uh, gotcha. right, right. So a, a timed and drop. Yes, exactly. So this is because uh, like the plant does not have to do that. It can just hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like things like coconuts or apples, the plant drops the pawpaws. Like a lot of, there are a lot of plants that you don't want to eat the fruit until they have fallen off of the tree because that is when they are ripe. Mm-hmm. And that often leads to a secondary type of dispersal, right. right? So, you know, an apple falls from the tree and then is eaten by a deer or something. Right. Now it's easier to access. We have dropped it from the exactly. tree. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Like who is really going to come up to the top of this apple tree and get this apple? But if I drop it, that's much easier for you. And then I don't have to worry about that. Uh, because, like, fruit, side note, fruit can be real heavy. Like, jackfruit, which is my favorite <laughs> fruit, fun fact, um, mm. weigh as much as a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they are the heaviest, they, they are the heaviest fruit. They can mess up your car if they fall on it. And so, yeah, like, you know, you don't want necessarily want that hanging from your branch any longer than you have to. Uh, and then the last type of dispersal I'm going to be talking about might be my favorite. This is uh, balacory, as in <laughs> ballistics. <Yep. laughs> this is by explosion. The exploding fruits. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is when seeds are ejected by explosive dehiscence. <laughs> cool. Which is a great term. Often the result of an increase in turgor pressure. So this turgor pressure is pretty much central to a lot of plant physiology and that's basically just like water pressure like how much how much force is the water inside this tube because plants are just tubes um this water balloon of a fruit mm-hmm. um how much pressure uh, is there and basically you get to a point where it bursts so i know that y'all have talked about this on the podcast before in the news um because i listen and i know <laughs> um <laughs> So, Ecbalium uh, is an exploding cucumber. Like, I love videos of these things. They mean business. Like, they can see- send seeds, like, pretty far. Trees in the genus Hura that are known as the dynamite tree. And they can send seeds 100 meters. Wow. Like, <laughs> a hunch, that's, that's a lot. A whole, that's a long way. Yeah, they're called dynamite trees for a reason. Like... They don't mess around. That's a number that came up when we were talking about gliders. Right? Yes. <laughs> In our glider episode, episode 148, we talked about the distance that animals are able to glide. That was an impressive number that came up then. <laughs> this is a plant sh- blowing up a, a fruit to send seeds flying through the air. That's preposterous. Yeah, I'm picturing the tree uh-huh. looking at the glider and going, I can reach that distance. Like, <laughs> or, Do you have one of those wing-shaped seeds? Go, no, no. That's not what I'm thinking. Exactly. Go, my offspring. Uh, <laughs> grow <laughs> all the way over there. Go grow in that end zone. Yeah, exactly. It's a football field. Uh, the I like, there was an example of witch hazel, hamamelis. So they are very common in eastern North America and also uh, East Asia, they disperse their seeds explosively, but mechanically. Ooh. So I don't quite understand the mechanism. I will be upfront with that. But it's not ex- its not the turker pressure. It's something else. Um, but they can still send it, like, 40 feet. Wow. Which, like, 
could work. That it's, is very it's just cool. very it's it's very impressive. And like sure from like a you know, like childlike haha exploding fruits situation is very interesting, but also like the fact that these these plants are like I'll do it myself. I'm going to throw my seeds over there. I don't need the wind. I don't need an animal. I don't need nobody else. I'll do it myself. It's genuinely very impressive. Well, and I, and I don't remember the, the common name or scientific name, but I remember as a kid coming across a, a, a plant. It was like, I think it was like at the playground at my school that had those those popping seeds that would pop and then yeah. spiral up uh, oh, as, yeah. as they uh, uh, detonated. And as a kid, I remember just being fascinated by... A, that a plant can do this, but also, like, the speed at which it happened. You know, it wasn't like a, a, I did it and then it curled up. It was, I popped it and then it was curled. I could not perceive yep. the moment between those two because it was instantaneous, seemingly. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like, people, you think of plants as being, like, unmoving or at least real slow. Uh, and so, like, rapid plant movement is always really impressive mm-hmm. whenever it happens because it yeah. doesn't happen all that often. Well, it's like when because when you think about it, like a Venus flytrap being a very fast plant, that's still like I chomp you. Like that would be <laughs> yes. a very slow bite for any animal. But these are like actually popping. It's it's impressive. Yes. So fruits serve to disperse seeds, which is not at all surprising. They are the structure that grows around seeds. What else would they be there for? Let's go. Way back in history, Allie, what do we know about the origins of fruit? All right. So keep in mind that we are talking about angiosperms. Yes. So so the record of angiosperms is really, we're confident in the Cretaceous. They were probably, like, they were doing things before that. But in the Cretaceous is when we have a pretty good handle of what the angiosperms were doing. So from the fossil record, from our understanding of of evolution, diversification of angiosperm seeds and fruits really kicks off, like, give or take 80 million years ago. So, like, this is Cretaceous. So this is the period of time where you've got, like, the Western Interior Seaway. Like, that is what's going on in, like, North America. As you mentioned, fruits are a thing that flowers make, and flowers are the thing that angiosperms are famous for. So it makes sense that for the extended answer to this question of where did fruits get started, go check out episode 57 about the origins of angiosperms. These are are tightly tied questions. Yes, correct. Because only angiosperms are doing this, and it is pretty much, you know, angiosperms are named for, you know, being an enclosed seed. What are they enclosed in? A fruit! Um, (laughs) So, the diversity of fruit and seed sizes and types really peaked about 50, 55 million years ago. So, in the Eocene is when we see, like, really this peak in the diversity. And it, kind of when we're talking about the evolution of fruit, you can divide it into, like, the pre-peak and post so pre Eocene peak and uh, post Eocene peak, and it's very interesting because I had not considered who was driving the um, early evolution of particularly fre- fleshy fruits. But mm-hmm. like, who do you think? I'm gonna I'm gonna put it to you, animal people. 
Who do you think, what animal group do you think was a key frugivore before we get into the, the Eocene? I mean, my gut is to just say that it's insects. Ants was what I was going to say. Because it's always insects. But if we're talking big stuff before we had mammals, uh, that the Cretaceous was full of dinosaurs. That's true. But what if I told you it was a mammal? What mammals were there kicking around in the Cretaceous? Multi-tuberculates? Uh-huh. Multi-tuberculates. I don't huh. ever think about multi-tuberculates. Interesting. Yeah. So multi-tuberculates, for our listeners, was a group, basically rodents before rodents. Mm-hmm. Th- these were very rodent-like mammals that were very prominent in early mammalian evolution. They were there in the Cretaceous. They were very prominent in the early Cenozoic and eventually went extinct. And they filled a lot of the same niches we think about being filled by rodents today. Exactly. I also didn't think about it much, but with you bringing them up, I do remember them having that slicing tooth that was very, very characteristic of them. That that cheek tooth that was like a pizza cutter blade. You know, maybe you're cutting up fruit with that right? with that blade. So pre-peak, multi-tuberculates are kind of our key frugivores. And post-peak, it is... In terms of mammals, it is primates and rodents. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Exactly. As a primate, I relate to this <laughs> fundamentally. Sure, sure. We're still doing it. So, exactly. Like, we, we never stopped. So, you have this prevalence of semi-open, dry, and disturbed vegetation during the Cretaceous. And then you're going into these closed, like, multi-canopy uh, forests in the Eocene. Uh, so that's really driving the, you know, this diversity of fruits, you know, driving the diversity of angiosperms. And then later on, as we move through time, you have this development of more open vegetation and grasslands into the oligomyocene. And that's when you kind of see more modern methods of dispersal and relationships um, in these systems. So... Once we get out of the Eocene and into the Oligomyocene, we see uh, new players coming into this uh, into this niche. Flying frugivores, so both birds and bats, mm-hmm. really took off in the Oligocene and took it, uh, advantage of this existing diversity and also these new opened up habitats okay yeah so um here's a thing that i've been thinking about this is the point that i can't i could not wait to tell you because it blew my mind and i have been waiting to share fleshy fruits evolved multiple times including after that eocene peak so clades where fleshy fruits originated were temporally distributed over the last 70 million years and almost half of the origins were younger than 40 million years. Wow. In Rubiaceae, which is a a very common um, family in the tropics, different kinds of fleshy fruits, so like droops, berries, and gardenia fruits, have evolved independently at least 12 times. Wow. So fleshy fruits, it sounds like, are a thing that has shown up multiple times, but particularly are a thing of the age of mammals. Yes, they are a Cenozoic-centric thing. Interesting, which, of course, makes sense, given the diversity of mammals that really specialize in fruits, which is maybe a bit of a chicken Mm -hmm. and an egg thing. Yeah, exactly. Probably there is, like, yeah, there were fruits, so you could get primates and rodents and bats and birds that specialized in fruits, but now that you have all these different groups of animals that do a really good job eating fruits, 
it makes total sense that natural selection would repeatedly hit upon this strategy mm-hmm. of having plants be like, hey, there's a ton of animals out here that eat fruits. Make fruits. Yeah. Make fleshy, delicious fruits. And you get diversification. I think what's uh, really interesting to me about it with the, the mammal connection is that mammals were connected early, early on. Yes. Like, it, that's, that's uh, it, like, it's surprising that you didn't mention birds as a major player until a bit later. And it's like, yeah, but what were you doing, birds? Like, you weren't playing this game as heavily. Why did it take you so long? And why did mammals hop on it so immediately? Uh, which is And part of that is because of the arboreal birds. Mm-hmm. Because it's the arboreal birds that are really affected by the KPG extinction. And it's also arboreal birds that do way better with dispersing these fruits. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Right? So I saw this really cool graph uh, in one of the papers that basically showed the um, the range, the time ranges of these different bird groups in particular. And like, yeah, we don't really see these big diversifications of particularly like arboreal birds until a good chunk of the way through the Cenozoic, which is wild mm-hmm. because like, yeah, what were you doing? Yeah. Evolving. That's what they were doing. Yes. Well, especially because nowadays, like, you know, primates and rodents and fruits and mammals and fruits is, but like birds and fruits, you know, the bird feeders are just full of, uh, uh, like, that's, that's, yeah, just synonymous nowadays. So it's weird to think that there was a time where it's like, no, that's not really what they're doing right now. Cool. Also, bird seed is mostly fruits. Yeah. Um. So, like, corn is a fruit, sunflower seeds are fruits. <laughs> like, most of those things are actually seeds or fruits. Anyway. <laughs> but here's the thing. So we're focusing on the animals because we are animals and we are so biased. And I mentioned primates. and But there's actually, I saw this really cool study that was looking at the relationship between climate and fruit type. So the evidence that evolution of fleshy fruits, so from dry fruits to fleshy fruits, is tied to changes in vegetation and therefore climate. So fleshy-fruited taxa occupied habitats characterized by lower light conditions and spatially more unpredictable disturbances. Hmm. So basically, when you can't be sure that you can rely on wind or something like that, water, you're like, uh, I'll be tasty. Yeah. And someone will find me and disperse me. Makes sense. That yeah, yeah, yeah. If your if your environment isn't consistent enough that you can just use the natural occurrences, mm-hmm. we better put out uh, ads and get someone yes. to come over and pick th- and take this somewhere. Yes, it, it's botanical Craigslist, <laughs> and it it is really interesting because again, like looking at these phylogenetic relationships between these different types of plants and the diver- the diversification of these different types of fruits. So looking at like the tomato family and things like that, it's really interesting because it, there's evidence that shows that changes in fruit morphology from dry to fleshy fruits or from one type of fleshy fruit to another are ontogenetically easy. Like, it's something that happens. Like, it's not a complicated thing. You're not going to ruin other parts of your genome by just switching from a dry fruit to a fleshy fruit or from one type of fleshy fruit to another type. And there is evidence for transitions from fleshy to dry fruits, but it is much less common. Uh, and Interesting. That, yeah, I, I, I noticed that when you were going through the, the categories, that there would be times where you, 
your descriptions would be almost the same, but the the middle layer would go from mm-hmm. fibrous or hard to fleshy. But basically, all the other layers were doing the same kind of job that you described in another group. So yeah, it's like, all right, we're just going to make this chew- more chewable. But everything else is doing its job basically the way we want it to. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at with a lot of these aren't like real groups. Mm-hmm. They aren't necessarily natural groups because they are maybe similar pathways, right? So they might have been like a dry fruit that, that, that took this pathway to get to a fleshy fruit. That's also part of the reason why it can be so hard to categorize them because they're not natural groups. We're just kind of like, well, these are similarities, so we'll put them under this umbrella. But sometimes there's, most normally it's many seeds, but sometimes they only have one. So like, you know, it, is this a new type of fruit? Like, is this really distinct or is this a subcategory of this other mm-hmm, type? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it's, it's like when we did like uh, parasites to where it's like, this means this, but there's a million ways to do that. Yes. Some don't even resemble each other. Very, very cool. Plants are great. Don't don't forget that. Plants <laughs> are great. <laughs> Let's talk about fossils. Uh, what do the earliest fruit fossils look like? Okay. So, two things to keep in mind. One thing to keep in mind that leads to the second thing. <laughs> the fossil record doesn't really like soft tissue. Right? Makes sense. <laughs> Just in general. Um, so there is a bias towards these dry fruits because they are harder. They're just easier to have preserved. Fortunately, there's also evidence that the earliest fruits were also dry fruits. Sure. (laughs) So that, that works out for us. Thank goodness. That is definitely like a point in our favor. So part of the trouble though, with different, with trying to identify like who is the oldest fruit is... (sighs) I talked about this in the angiosperm uh, episode. The origins of angiosperms are a dark, a dark place, like a confusing place. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just—it's hard to tell what's going on, and it can be very difficult to, to differentiate between early angiosperms and benetitales. And so that's a thing that comes up repeatedly. That oh, we think this is the earliest fruit. Just kidding. This is probably a benetitalian. And trying to to parse that out is extremely difficult. And I'm not that kind of paleobotanist. And man, oh man, do I appreciate the people who do that. But that being said, some of the earliest known fossils of Cretaceous fruits are, unsurprisingly, fossil achenes. So basically just like the most basic version of a fruit. Mm-hmm. And they're actually from Kansas. They're from the Dakota Formation. So they are early Cretaceous. Oh, cool. uh, I was very excited about them. They're I mean, they don't look like much, but I love them. <laughs> Some of the earliest fleshy fruits are also from the early early Cretaceous. And I double-checked, and it seems like people are still pretty on board with this. They're known from the early Cretaceous of Russia and China in the genus Calianthus. The trouble with some of these old... Okay, so this is the trouble that I ran into, is that they don't tell you, understandably, they won't tell you what kind of fruit it is they just describe it in incredibly technical detail <laughs> so just it is a fleshy fruit what kind uh it's a fleshy fruit well, it's, it's like when you describe the citrus and i was like oh that this boy that sure does sound appetizing sarcastically said and then you went citrus and went, oh i love citrus <laughs> exactly right so it's like i i am a leaf kind of paleobotanist <laughs> not a fruit kind of paleobotanist so like 
it is difficult for me to decipher that. I had to go get my notes from grad school to, to, to uh, help me with this. <laughs> there are actually a considerable number of fossil fruits known from the late Cretaceous. Shout out to Brian Atkinson at KU. I When I was looking through, like, so many papers, like dogwood fruits, which are, are droops, or winged fruits, mahogany fruits, which are also droops, like, they've got the, the market cornered <laughs> on uh, late Cretaceous fruit. And a lot of these things are three-dimensionally um, preserved. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, like, thank you personally to Brian Atkinson. <laughs> Great person. But it's interesting. So based on fossil evidence, droops, so that's going to be our stone fruits, dominated among the fleshy fruits during the expansion of the late Cretaceous into the early uh, Paleocene. So basically, most, like, when we find fleshy fruits from the Cretaceous and Paleocene, they tend to be droops. Berries are rarely documented um, from those Paleofloras, but... It could also be that just because of like the nature of berry seeds, they might just be harder to identify. Mm-hmm. So they might not be as uh, uncommon as we think they are, but regardless, so they don't show up a bunch. But if, like I mentioned before, if you want like the cream of the crop, the prettiest fruits you, you ever did see, like fossil fruits you ever did see, the Eocene. Mm-hmm. Eocene is where it's at. Because like off the top of my head, even before I started looking into this, I was like, where do I know that there are fossil fruits from? The Clarno nut beds <laughs> at John Day. All right. No, yeah, aptly named. Uh, fluorescent fossil beds. Mm-hmm. So both of these are Eocene. Messel. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, the, like these places in particular are Eocene and are absolutely... So there's something about this type of preservation they see commonly in the Eocene, and also just the, the sheer abundance of these kinds of fruits in the Eocene. And then also, shout out to the Brandon Lignite. It's an illegal Miocene site. It's in Vermont. It's got beautiful fruits. It's got extensive fruits. It's not well dated. I actually included it in my thesis analysis, so it has a uh, <laughs> a soft spot in my heart. But yeah, so that generally general overview of kind of a yeah, the early fossils of fruits. Cool. Yeah. It's pretty interesting that they hit upon fleshy fruits pretty early on, uh, from what you're saying. Like, you know, it wasn't like the, we started with dry fruits and then stayed there for a while until eventually fl- fleshy fruits came around. Like, that seems like it was pretty early on addition to the variety, uh, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, that was something that I was... I didn't know going in. Like, I wasn't sure going in. Like, yeah, what did we start with? Because I, I genuinely wasn't sure. Like, was this... Because who knows? Because there's there's a lot of arguments as to what, like, where do angiosperms come from? So, like, were the earliest fruits actually fleshy fruits? Because I want to point out that there are plenty of things that are fruit-like mm-hmm. that aren't fruits, mm-hmm. right? So, like, gymnosperms love to do things that seem like juniper berries again berries are a lie (laughs) things like that they have these arils around their seeds so like these fleshy structures around their seeds but they're not fruits yeah so yeah like were fleshy fruits the earliest things it does and were dry fruits secondarily no it doesn't seem like it but it's just it is genuinely really hard to tell because these the earliest record of angiosperms isn't isn't particularly good so you know, maybe if I come back in uh, 10 years, 
it'll be fundamentally, or its understanding will be fundamentally different. And I'll look back and be like, you fool, you thought. (laughs) So when we look at the fossil record of fruits, what do fruit fossils tend to look like? And what are some of the sort of standout examples of fossil fruits? So fruits come in a variety of different types of fossils. A good chunk of them, pretty typically, they tend to be compression fossils, Mm. right? So they are flattened as if you were to squish it between pages of a book. Like leaves tend to be preserved. Exactly. A very similar type of mode of preservation that we see in fossil leaves. That is all well and good for dry fruits. That can be less than ideal for your fleshy fruits because you just squished it. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes you'll get this 3D permineralization. And that is, oh man, that's the good stuff. Like that stuff is just really, really cool. Um, I've seen some of the like CT scans of these like basically, you know, seed nut nodules. And yeah, you can see the whole structure in the inside of the fruit. It's amazing. Like... Wow. The a lot of the material from like fluorescent is compression, and you'll you'll be able to see the whole outline. You'll be able to see the whole shape, um, but it is it is flattened. And sometimes there, this you know, you have things like seeds preserved three dimensionally in uh, copper lights. Yep, fossil poop. <laughs> um, so we don't know necessarily that there was a fruit, but we could be pretty confident. They probably weren't just nom nom nomming on seeds. Right. <laughs> but that in and of itself, speaking of copper lights, leads into the second question that you asked me. So what can we learn from these fossils? Um, we can learn a lot about the food web. Like, because uh, fruit fossils can tell us, you know, there are two different things. There are more things. But there are two different things that they can tell us. They can tell you what plants were there, mm-hmm. which is important. Um, but they can also tell you, what was the available food? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is really helpful for understanding what is going on in the entire ecosystem. So studies on looking into like moa mega herbivory are based on fruits and seeds in coprolites. The paper that came out, oh my goodness, it was last year, it, about the Jehalornis with the, the seedy gut contents. Mm-hmm. We talked about this. In episode 152, uh, constructing the ecosystem, that food web of the Jehol biota, mm-hmm. with those various, mostly uh, Cretaceous birds, mm-hmm. a lot of that food web was put together using uh, fossil seeds yeah. or seed-like things, one assumes. Yes, exactly. So, no, especially having this like direct evidence, these seeds were in the gut mm-hmm. <laughs> of this animal we can make some competent assumptions that they were probably consumed, uh, whether or not it was entirely on purpose, eh, eh, but they were consumed. We have an example that we like to talk about at the Gray Fossil Site. Uh, We have our one uh, famous taper specimen that had hickory nuts in its gut, which Mm -hmm. is one of the very few direct examples we have from Gray of this animal ate this thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's, that is really, really exciting, especially because like, more often than not, we don't tend to have plants and animals preserved in the same sorts of layers. So having like, hey, I got a bird with seeds in its gut, like, cool. I know that bird interacted with that plant, at least in some way, yeah. uh, which is really, really exciting. Um, so yeah, being able to like understand like nutrient interactions through an environment is super cool. 
Um, it's something that we're still learning about modern ecosystems. So the, so the fact that we can apply this to the fossil record is amazing. And on that note, it can also help us understand methods of dispersal, mm-hmm. right? So endozoochory interpretations based either on we would expect this based on the relationships with modern groups or literally finding them either in the coprolites or in the guts. When I was at the Sternberg, we had a rhino coprolite with grass seeds in it. Cool. Which makes perfect sense because like if you're grazing, you're just eating the whole whole plant. So yeah, you're going to end up with the seeds in your gut. Yeah. And other methods of dispersal, I know y'all talked about this. The uh, fossil evidence for the exploding fruit, mm-hmm. the Deccan traps, Euphorbia theca decanensis. So even in the fossil record, we can have an understanding of these methods of dispersal. Like, hey, this fruit has all the hallmarks that we would expect if it were exploding <laughs> to yeah. disperse its seeds. <laughs> Which is a very cool thing to be able to see. Well, it, it's sort of when we talk about uh, behavior in the fossil record, which we did a whole episode mm-hmm. about, episode 52, we are typically thinking of that in terms of animals. Yes. How are these animals yeah. behaving? But fruit is a fun avenue where if you find a fruit, you are almost guaranteed to find some evidence of the behavior of this plant based on the shape mm-hmm. and structures of that fruit. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Allie, do you have a favorite fossilized fruits? Oh, fossilized fruits. Yes, I believe so. Okay, so there are these, like, Chinese lantern fruits, the, um, like, tomatillos that have that, like, it's like it looks like a tomato on the inside, and they have, like, that paper covering on the outside. Like, uh, physalis, I think is the, so not tomatillos, but physalis. So they have like a little fruit on the inside and then this like papery sheath. There are fossils of those. <laughs> and I think they look so cool. Oh, neat. That sounds really interesting. We'll have to see if I we can them. get a picture for the blog post. We might yes. not be able to if it's, if it's super I, obscure. I know. I, I, I literally <laughs> ran across it yesterday when I was going through this. I was like, oh, yes, this is my favorite. And I neglected to make a note of it. So I will find it for you. <laughs> well, very cool. Fruits. Uh, this is one of those episodes that has a thousand branches that could go off into other super cool discussions uh, because fruits have such a neat modern diversity and a very cool fossil record and evolutionary history, especially because like plants so often are. They are so tightly tied to changing climate conditions and to the evolution of the animals that are living in those environments. Yes. They're the best. <laughs> Very cool. So, yeah, there's whole sections we didn't we didn't even get to talk about in this episode. Yeah. Like, we, ba- we barely even touched on the, like, domestication of fruits mm-hmm. and human use of fruits. That's another episode. Yes. Well, great. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up our our big old discussion about fruits there. Allie, uh, this has been uh, super fascinating, as usual. Uh, thank you once again for coming here and teaching us stuff about plants. I love it. I appreciate having a captive audience. <laughs> That's us. We're the captive audience. Yeah. Very cool. This episode also functions as a neat little companion, I think, to the seeds episode. Yes. Yes. These are one of those. Every now and then there's we'll have episodes that are like, these two should come packaged together. Yep. Kind of like a seed and a fruit. Mm-hmm. These two uh, are there. <laughs> 
Now, before we finally finish wrapping up our discussion for the entire podcast episode, we have one last thing to do, and that is our patron question. One of the rewards that our patrons can get from subscribing to us on Patreon is the ability to submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. And every now and then, someone sends in a question that is very plant-related, and we will often hold on to these so that we can make Allie answer them for us. (laughs) Outsource it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This episode's patron question (laughs) comes from Hobart, who says, When thinking about pollinators... We often think about bugs and insects, but birds have a large role to play in pollinating as well. I've noticed that flight in birds seems to evolve around the same time as the rise of angiosperms. Do you think birds had a larger role in the evolution of flowering plants than we give them credit for? What say you, Allie? Short answer is yes. Sure. (laughs) Makes sense. They're flying around. They're eating plants. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you more than that. Don't worry. Well, we... And that's something we actually... uh, touched upon multiple times in this episode is that birds birds were there birds were there in the thick of it in the the you know the middle of the the cenozoic and it's really interesting so we have you know evidence way back into um you know from the jehol biota of these interactions but even today like passerine birds so like songbirds are dominant frugivores globally and like which fruit again isn't just like fleshy fruits this can be seeds and many many groups of birds eat fruits they're mm-hmm. interacting with with um you have hummingbirds with flowers you know there are all of these ways that they can interact and yeah i think that especially moving on later in the Cenozoic, like I do think that birds have been playing a really big role. And I do think it gets overlooked because, um, which is weird. Birds are charismatic as all get out. But I, I do think yeah. that we are underestimating the, the interactions and the impacts that, that birds have with like the diversification of angiosperms. So yeah, someone get on that. <laughs> now you mentioned, uh, we've talked a bunch about birds sort of Eating seeds, mm-hmm. eating fruits, which is obviously a major uh, dispersal agent is moving yeah. seeds around. Uh, and this question also specifically mentioned pollinating. Mm-hmm. Do birds have a major role in pollination today? I know we see that a lot with insects. We see it with bats. Mm-hmm. One would imagine birds are doing it a bunch. Yeah. So like hummingbirds are going to be yeah. getting mm-hmm. up in there. And then... In other parts of the world, there are other birds that fill those roles, but I am a botanist, so I cannot remember who they are at this moment. (laughs) But no, like at a minimum, birds like coexist with plants, right? So even if they are not doing it on purpose, like accidentally, all you have to do is run into one flower and then run into another flower and hey, you've done some pollination. Um, and just given the ways that like birds can easily move around, like move through space, like I would not be surprised if like secretly birds were doing way more pollination than we thought they were just because it might be a more passive thing. They might not tr- be trying to do it in the same way that say like bats or insects are. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that birds were at the very least in the Cretaceous very well positioned. Yes. To be important pollinators. Yes. Uh, if you're feeding on plants or if you're feeding on the bugs that are feeding on plants Mm -hmm. and you're so mobile that yeah almost certainly they would have had a major role yeah even if just accidentally yes and and that was part of the thinking that i was that i had was that like 
you're covered in these feather dusters that are just going to be great for pollen to grab on. Like mm-hmm. you're not you're not yeah. a smooth, sleek surface like like a beetle's carapace that mm-hmm. that might not have pollen cling to it as well. Like you're fuzzy, very much like fuzzy bum- bumblebees who are great at pollen. Like, exactly. Pollen seems like it would just cling to you, and so like if you brush up against flowers, you're gonna get a decent yeah. amount of pollen it seems yeah. like maybe maybe the adherence of feathers is different than i think it would be but it sure seems like yeah, it'd yeah. be good yeah a fascinating question thank you hobart for that question thank you to all of our patrons uh who submit questions and even the ones who don't <laughs> thank you to everybody who sent in the requests that led to this episode uh thank you to everybody uh, who listens and who sends in requests for all sorts of topics if there's something that we touched upon or mentioned or made you think about during this discussion that you'd like to hear an episode about as usual feel free to reach out with us hop down in the episode description to find all the ways to do that and a big thanks to ally ally thank you so much for joining us again for another plants episode and teaching us about fruits. This was tons of fun. I love these episodes and I love them even more now that we're in the same time zone. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Congratulations on your successful move and your new position. Thank you very much. We will have you back for episode 175, which will be some other plants uh, related episodes. So audience, continue to send in your requests for plant related episodes with Allie. Uh, other things coming up. Don't forget uh, that summer's coming up and June and July are croc month and snake month. Yep. We will have a whole bunch of cool things going on during those times. Stay tuned for more. We release episodes every fortnight. Two weeks from now, another episode. Probably something about animals. That, that's usually, <laughs> that's our usual MO. We bring in Allie here to balance things out mm-hmm. every now and then. And then we immediately try to swing it back the other yes, way. Yes, exactly. We're just going to talk about animals for the next 10 episodes. <laughs> That's all it's going to be. We're not going to mention plants once. We mention plants way more on the podcast uh-huh. nowadays. Yeah, yes. you do. Because of the influence of Allie. Yep. There will be episodes where I will be putting together the, the information and I, I will have a little voice in my head that's like, don't forget <laughs> to mention plants. Like, like the glide, I mentioned the gliders episode earlier. I was like, I have to mention gliding and plants. That's a thing that exists because mm-hmm. there's a little Allie voice that goes, you have to mention plants in your episode. See, my, my little voice is Allie's going to call you out on this when she <laughs> listens to this episode. Yes, you have said it out loud. I don't remember what episode yep. it was, but you said something like, boo, plants. And then immediately was like, Allie is going to call me out the next time yep. she talks yeah. to me. Allie's going to call yeah. me yeah. out. Uh-huh. She's going to stop coming on the podcast. We're going to have to start doing the plant episodes ourselves. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. All right. Let's wrap it up. Uh, final, 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 final short question. Allie, what is your favorite fruit? Jackfruit. I already told you that. Well, watermelon. Uh, that's my answer. Yeah, watermelon. Real good. Watermelon's great. Listeners, tell us your favorite fruits. Yes. Uh, and we will uh, disagree with you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks one more time, Allie. We'll see you next time you're on the podcast. Yay. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.